Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea. In this episode, we speak with Ben Garfinkel, who is a research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute and acting director of the Center for the Governance of AI, also known as GovAI. GovAI has quickly become a majorly exciting organization in the field of AI governance, providing advice to national governments and AI labs about the radical and lasting impacts that artificial intelligence could have on the world, as well as helping early career researchers skill up in the field. So by the way, for any listeners interested in AI governance, we highly recommend that you look at their fellowship programs. Finn and I were particularly interested to hear how Ben's own views on AIs have evolved over the past few years. Ben has previously given a popular interview a few years back on the 80,000 Hours podcast, and it seemed high time to check in to see how his views have changed since, especially given how much the world of AI has evolved and how the discourse on AI has developed within the effective altruism community too. In this episode, we talk about an overview of the AI governance space and disentangling some concrete research questions that Ben would like to see more work on, seeing how existing arguments for transformative AI have held up, and then lastly, GovAI's own work and opportunities for listeners to get involved with. So without further ado, here's the episode. So I, I run the Center for the Governance of AI, and at the moment, um, a lot of my energy has been taken up by uh, just basically doing that. Um, <laughs> I haven't had that much of a research focus the last few months. Um, there's been a lot of attention on figuring out how to grow the organization and figuring out what directions we want to go in over the next year. Um, and so there's been a lot of strategy work um, like that. All right. What is AI governance? The way I would define it uh, really broadly um, is uh, there are a class of concerns that people have about the effect that progress in artificial intelligence might have about the world. And the field of AI governance basically tries to understand uh, the issues that progress in AI might cause and tries to understand um, how decisions that we make today uh, could have an impact on how positive or negative the implications of AI are. Mm -hmm. Sounds to me like there are lots of questions there and presumably something like GovAI can't focus on all of them. Um, so what questions within the governance of AI do you focus on? Right. So the way that GovAI uh, tends to frame our focus is we're focused on the lasting impacts of artificial intelligence. And what that means essentially is, um, um, by analogy, if you think about something like the Industrial Revolution or previous periods of technological change, uh, there are a number of changes or effects of these you know, periods of technological transformation um, that basically uh, cause disruption or um, issues that arise and then are are resolved over some period of time. Uh, but then there's obviously quite a few changes that come from uh, technological uh, transformations that have very lasting significance, um, mm. you know, decades and and beyond that into the future. Uh, so if you think about something like the Industrial Revolution, um, there are obviously you know temporary dislocations as people figure mm. out how to transition to this. You know, issues like let's say labor migrations in the cities. Uh, but then also when the dust settled um, after industrialization, the world was just obviously radically, radically different along a lot yeah. of dimensions than it was before. Uh, so as a guiding principle, and this obviously doesn't narrow it down quite that much so far, <laughs> but as a guiding principle, we tend to focus on uh, the lasting implications of a transition to a world with, with more advanced AI. Nice. Could you maybe give us like a list of concrete research questions that might fall under this or a taxonomy of what kinds of impacts you're thinking about? Right. So I think uh, research questions, I'd say, is a little bit different than than sort of, you know, impacts. So I think you can start by looking at what are the risks or things you might be concerned about. Uh, so maybe I'll just run through a a few different things that um, you might be concerned about in no particular order that I would I would put in a basket of, of possible lasting implications of AI. Uh, so one category that um, immediately comes to mind is uh, you might be concerned about the impact of automation through AI on a wide range of things that affect human well-being, including political institutions. 
So really, really blunt, sort of clear-cut implication of AI, if progress goes far enough, is um, if progress continues, probably will be the case that anything that people can do can, in principle, be done by AI systems or software. And then um, an implication that very immediately comes to mind for many people is it's not quite clear that that means that people still can have jobs. Um, and then if you think about that, there's obviously uh, some things that might come from that downstream. Uh, so uh, for example, if you think ahead and you think about the fact that, let's say, democracy is a relatively modern thing in the world, it's really only the past, especially 100 years, mm -hmm. that's been common for um, there to be, you know, modern forms of democracy um, in, across many different countries. And you think about the implications of uh, law enforcement being completely automatable and most people having nothing to contribute through labor. It's pretty easy to tell a story about how that might not be good for the world in terms of political power or mm -hmm. enfranchisement um, or just different you know, downstream implications of, of just the nature and value of labor changing. So that's one of the, the blunter things that I think you know, is, is a sort of clear story about how AI could have a lasting impact in the world that um, is, is negative. Um, I think there's a lot of other things as well. Um, so another uh, fairly blunt category is it does seem like progress in AI might in one way or another exacerbate risk of conflict. Uh, so you already, to some extent, perhaps see this with, um, um, I believe you had a, a recent episode on uh, semiconductor supply chains, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so it may be the case, for example, that um, recent US activity to try and basically hobble uh, China's access to advanced semiconductors it's possible on the margin that already has a slight impact on the risk of war between the US and China um, insofar as it increases tensions or lowers the, um, the amount of economic damage China would expect to, to suffer if it were to invade Taiwan um, as a sort of small step in the direction of, of the risk of conflict increasing. Uh, but just in general, if you think that AI might be a, a source of significant power and significant competition around it, that might be have an exacerbating effect on the risk of conflict. It might also be the case as well that some military applications of AI uh, could be destabilizing in various ways. Sometimes people talk about uh, nuclear second strike stability being undermined by, for example, better tracking technology for nuclear weapons or autonomous weapon systems being destabilizing. Um, and so if there were to be a large-scale nuclear war or perhaps a war with even more advanced weapons enabled by AI, uh, that's another story you could tell about how there could be negative impacts of AI that, that stick around quite a while. Um, and then I'd say a third category, not, not, the, not the only category, but another story you can tell about how there might be lasting, perhaps negative implications of AI um, are uh, issues around catastrophic safety failures of AI systems. Mm. Uh, so there's this current trend of AI systems becoming um, more and more capable and more and more general and also being allowed to interact with the world in more and more substantial ways. Um, and if you extrapolate this trend forward, it might be the case that um, in the future we have AI systems which can do many things uh, much more intelligently than people can uh, that can pursue goals in a relatively open-ended way out in the world. Um, and then, you know, if these systems are designed appropriately, maybe that's fine. Um, but also if they behave in unexpected ways, um, if possible to imagine that uh, they could cause, you know, fairly severe damage or, or in, some, in various ways simply get out of control. Um, and this is a, a class of concerns that um, a lot of people in the um, sort of especially AGI-focused AI governance world um, uh, focus a, a a large amount of attention on that there's um, uh, quite a bit to, to say about. So I think um, one way that we've kind of thought about this like so far has been uh, listing, as you said, the reasons why there might be like long lasting impacts or what those impacts might be. 
another way I could imagine approaching this question is thinking about like what some of the like ongoing dynamics are at the moment. So you mentioned, uh, for example, competition between nation states. We can also think about um, competition between labs. In that kind of framing of dynamics that are going on, what are some underlying reasons why we shouldn't just expect the world to be able to solve these problems kind of straightforwardly? Yeah, I mean, so I think a, a similar answer to that is there's lots of problems the world has failed to solve historically that have um, some analogous properties. So for example, if you're worried about the risk of conflict between states, it is definitely notable that wars have happened, which were massively destructive in the past. And it's not really clear why this should be so different today. Have there been examples of like wars between states because of these like technological pressures and stuff? Um, so I wouldn't say, yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, so I'd say that the role of, of technological change in conflict is pretty, um, is pretty contested. Um, so, um, there's also, so I'd say that there's, there's a couple of potential pathways by which, um, um, progress in AI could exacerbate the risk of conflict. Yeah. Uh, one is power transitions. Um, if it's believed that, um, artificial intelligence or leadership in it uh, might be pretty important for national power and there's concern that, you know, lagging states, uh, for instance, in this case, China, um, might surpass leading states, for instance, the United States. Yeah. One narrative people sometimes tell is that this might exacerbate the risk of conflict um, because basically the leading state is really worried about losing its position and is willing to take risky actions to sort of lower the odds of that. There's a separate story that people sometimes tell, um, which is not so much about power transitions, uh, but is more about um, the nature of military technology um, and the extent to which it, for instance, uh, favors offense over defense or allows conflicts to escalate quite quickly. Um, I'd say both of these uh, dynamics, it's fairly controversial among international relations scholars how large a role they play in conflict. Um, in terms of power transitions, uh, there is a pretty large literature that, that suggests or argues that if there's a situation where a leading state is worried about a lagging state surpassing it, that this exacerbates the risk of conflict. There's um, a recent book, Destined for War, that makes this argument, for example. Um, and then, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of, of cases which are sometimes pitched this way. Um, it is really, really hard, though, to do causal inference in international yeah. relations and actually know, um, would this conflict not have happened if there wasn't this, this you know, lagging state mm -hmm. rising up? Um, so I'd say that that's a relatively common view, but it's, it's really not something where you can say there's very straightforward evidence that this is actually a causal effect. Um, in terms of the effect of changes in the nature of military technology, this is again one where it's quite controversial and it's very hard to do that causal inference. Um, so as a positive case of technology being stabilizing, um, it's pretty commonly thought that, for example, states just having nuclear weapons lowers the risk of them going to war with each other, that the, you know, the chance the Cold War would have turned hot would have been higher if yeah. they didn't both have nuclear weapons. That's a pretty conventional view that has um, a, a sort of lot of intuitive appeal to it. It's again one of those things where um, it's hard to do really confident causal inference here, but seems quite plausible to me. Uh, there's other historical cases which people sometimes raise, which I think are more ambiguous. But I think in broad strokes, um, I do think it's, it's generally thought that at least for sufficiently extreme differences, for example, the case of two states having nuclear weapons versus not yeah. um, military technology can have an impact on the risk of conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. A related question I have is something like, if it's the case that AI tends to have these big, important, lasting effects, then sure, but why can we expect to, first of all, know about them enough um, to know what to do? And then secondly, 
do something to help them go better. So I'm imagining like, uh, you mentioned the industrial revolution, like a center for the governance of the industrial revolution. That's like trying to anticipate like, oh boy, it sure seems like, you know, this, this thing that's kind of on the horizon cause a bunch of like, displace a bunch of jobs, a bunch of migration into cities, maybe it'll like differentially empower the countries that get these like technologies first. But it kind of seems to me from our perspective that they probably wouldn't have figured out what to do to actually make it go go well. So like, what's different? Yeah, so I, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's completely plausible that for a number of these risks, there's nothing people can do to have an impact <laughs> on them. <laughs> um, I think it's completely plausible. Um, and just to stress that, so to stress that point even more, um, I, I like to use both the Industrial Revolution and the Agricultural or Neolithic Revolution as, as touchstones for this, of points where there was some really major change in the nature of production. In the case of AI, it's human cognitive either labor no longer being so valuable. In the case of the Industrial Revolution, there's a lot of stuff going on, but one thing is basically a transition from muscle power and organic sources of energy playing a large role in production to, to fossil fuels and, and, and these sorts of things. And then Neolithic Revolution um, transition from um, hunting and gathering to actually um, intensive agriculture. Um, and so you have these different points in time where there's been, yeah, some really major change in the nature of productive technology. And then it's quite clear in both the agricultural and industrial revolution cases, a lot of stuff seemed to follow from this downstream. Um, I think in both those major historical cases, though, um, it's really not very clear at all that people could have done much to have an impact on the most significant lasting changes that those revolutions brought. I think especially in the case of the Neolithic Revolution, um, there were a lot of things that seemed to have been probably causally downstream of it. Mm -hmm. You want uh, to remind us what the Neolithic Revolution was? Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. So basically, um, uh, between um, roughly 10,000 BC and uh, 5,000 or, or BC or so in the Near East, and then um, different time periods in other parts of the world. Um, agriculture emerged. So previously, people mostly hunted things and then gathered things, yeah. famously. <laughs> yeah. um, and then over time, there's a gradual transition um, towards uh, what looks like you know, modern agriculture, where you stay in one place and you plant and sure. you cultivate specific crops. And then um, following on that, there were a lot of, of changes, um, uh, basically socially, that seemed to have been flow-through effects. Uh, so for example, um, just partly as a function of the fact that people um, could get way more food per unit of land and could stay in the same place. This made it possible for way higher population densities to exist and for there to be more specialization in labor. Um, and over time, um, states emerged, uh, things like, you know, uh, political systems with different levels of hierarchy emerged. Um, slavery in recognizable forms probably became substantially more common. Um, and that was contentious, probably uh, divisions and generals became more significant. People probably became uh, sicker um, as well, just due to disease becoming possible. Um, rates of international interpersonal violence probably went down because states could protect people from killing each other mm -hmm. more easily and things like that. Um, yeah, so basically a lot of changes in the world. I think if you had been someone in, you know, 10,000 BC in the Near East and, you know, you're noticing, oh, I think, you know, the way this is going, uh, you know, if, you know, several thousand years in the future, you know, maybe we'll be living in, in, you know, giant empires and autocratic states and all these things will be going on and we should, you know, try to, to avoid that happening or we should try and get the good stuff without the bad stuff. Really, really not clear at all what one yeah, does right. there. <laughs> um, and then a significant part of it is um, competitive pressure, pressures play a significant role in, in, I think, determining what the impact of technology is on the world in the long run. 
that often there are ways to use technology which are just more competitive than others in an economic or political sense. And then there's some sort of selective pressure. Mm. So um, sedentary agricultural states um, could probably, without huge amounts of difficulty, or at least on average, expand out and take land that was previously controlled by hunter-gatherer groups just because there's more competitively advantageous. And similar for industrialization, where um, if you decided intentionally not to industrialize, as a number of states were hesitant to, to do, um, this really put you at a, a disadvantage and made it easier, for example, for um, you know, colonization to happen or, or other forms of pressure to be put on you. Um, yeah, so this is a long-winded way of saying, basically, if you look at these historical cases and you look at these really long-run effects of them, um, intuitively, it seems like there probably wasn't that much uh, people really could have done to affect the implications of these things, you know, decades out um, or centuries or, you know, millennia out. Um, and I think a lot of that probably has to do with competitive pressures and the fact that it just wasn't really realistic for people to coordinate around them, even in a world where they actually had foresight about them. Mm. Yeah, do you think that there is an important difference between those examples and the situation we are in today, that there is just like more ways that the world can coordinate or can like have foresight here? I can imagine just the like epistemic tools that are available yeah. today are just like very different than what was in the Industrial Revolution, let alone the Agricultural Revolution. Yeah, so I think that there's there's two possible ways in which the current situation uh, could be different if you're concerned about it. Um, one is that the nature of the problems is different in a way which makes them um yeah. you know, easier to solve. And the other could be that the tools that we have to avoid them are different. Uh, so in terms of the tools, if you wanted to tell that story, it would be something having to do with just international coordination is more feasible than it was before. Um, so clearly international coordination on like, let's say no one ever should develop intensive agriculture globally. It's like you couldn't really have had mm, a yeah, conference yeah. on, on that <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. At, at the time. Um, and obviously, you know, similar for... Um, you know, although to a slightly lesser extent, but but similar for the industrial revolution to, to some extent. Um, and so that's one story you could tell is that um, if there's things you're concerned about, so let's say you're concerned about um, in some way, you know, wide scale automation um, leading to decline of democracy or just various things that are actually undesirable for people, uh, perhaps you could actually have international agreements or shared understandings on these things in a way that wasn't possible historically. Um, it's not so clear to me um, that that's the case. And I, I think one issue here as well is it, it needs to just actually be very stable, whatever you lock in, where it can't just be the case that, um, uh, you know, so you can think again in the, let's say, Neolithic Revolution case, even if people had, let's say, a 5,000 year moratorium on on that somehow, <laughs> you know, if the if the coordination breaks down, you know, maybe eventually someone starts planting some things. Yeah, so, yeah right. Um, and so, um, so this is, I think, a bit of a hard push. We need some sort of story of, of, of not just you know, actors globally coordinating to um, hold off on on adopting something which is competitively advantageous but but bad in the long run. You need them to actually just yeah. potentially never do it, or you need some sort of story there. Um, so that's a bit of a hard that's a bit of a hard push. Um, I think on the um, although not completely. Yeah, we can talk more about why that might not be completely zero probability. Yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's basically it's a hard push. Let's let's say. Um, yeah. On the flip side, though, the the other story might be that um, there's something different about some of the um, the risks or or things that might get locked in around AI compared to these previous historical cases. Mm -hmm. And I think the 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 risk from AI that I most strongly feel that for um, is these sort of safety risks that I alluded to uh, mm -hmm. of risks of AI systems essentially getting out of control. 
And I think the first thing to note about this is that this is pretty different than the sorts of things that people were concerned about or the sorts of harms or, or yeah. benefits I raised for these previous revolutions. Um, none of them had this this flavor of, of, you know, like a safety issue or this acute catastrophe, essentially. Um, I think safety is also especially interesting where, um, yeah, so let, let, let's, you know, we can tell a story about how there might be some level of contingency in a, in a permanent way with um, harms caused by out of control AI systems. Um, so uh, one story you might tell about how disaster could occur here um, is, okay, so let's take these these current AI systems that might, people might be aware of, these um, systems like GPT-4 um, or these language models. And the way these systems currently work is basically they, um, they're systems which are very, very good at generating ideas and including ideas for how to do things. You ask them questions like, um, oh, I want to make an app that does this. How should I code that? Or can, can you generate some code for me? Um, or I want to get better at this. How do I do that? You know, things like that. And they're getting increasingly good over time. Um, over time, they may become um, you know, substantially better than people coming up with ideas for how to do things in the world. There's also a trend towards um, them being developed in a way that allows them to interact more heavily with different aspects of the world. Um, we're probably on a trajectory where you can start to do things like ask them, um, oh, hey, can you, you know, um, plan this event for me and do all the back and forth emailing yep. and contract mm -hmm. with the relevant person, et cetera. Um, and so we're on some sort of trajectory here where these systems are going to become increasingly good at coming up with ideas about how to do things in the world, um, perhaps superhuman along different dimensions, perhaps given increasingly large amounts of autonomy about how to do this and allowed to interact with increasingly important bits of, of infrastructure in the world, including, let's say, the financial system or perhaps in the future military, um, you know, things as well. Um, and then a story you can tell here is basically these systems um, often behave in pretty unpredictable ways. We don't really understand what's going on inside of them. Um, and then uh, there's a range of arguments people give, um, which we can get into for why the likelihood of these things just behaving in ways which are really, really not in the interest of the user um, um, and really, really hard to control um, or higher than you might even intuitively think. And then the story here is, you know, these trends continue. Um, we continue to not be in really great control of these systems. And then at some point in the future, there's there's a catastrophe that occurs. There's some sort of um, um, related to these systems being hooked up in some way to critical infrastructure, or just to these systems being in some way sort of um, self-preserving and and sort of not easily reined in. And in some way, we lose control over important bits of the world. Um, broadly speaking, in a very abstract level, that's a, a concern that people have about safety or control of these systems. And the nice thing, though, about uh, safety or control of AI systems is everyone basically is on the same page globally that um, we would like for AI systems to do the things that we want them to do mm, as opposed yeah. to things that no one wants them mm. to do. Um, and so if it were really technically easy or straightforward to know whether the system you're releasing is going to behave as you want it to behave um, or um, just really easy or straightforward to for sure make it in a way that will behave the way you want it to behave and not go out of control or cause you know really severe unintended harm, uh, then everyone basically would would do that. Um, no one wants to release the system that they know will do specifically the things that they don't want it to do. Yeah. yeah. And so you can have a story there of, of contingency um, where it's partly a matter of do people actually work out good enough techniques for making these things reliably behave the way you want them to, or at least reliably, reliably predictable in terms of whether they're um, in, a, in a sense, aligned or unaligned. Um, and then the, the story here is if these techniques for identifying the safety of a system um, or making it, it safe are developed quickly enough, then people will just basically use them 
Um, and then if these techniques exist, then people will just basically use them. No one is going to, in, at that point, it would need to be an intentional act to release something which causes catastrophes. Um, and then maybe that becomes quite unlikely that any actor with the resources to make these things would intentionally release anything that's catastrophic. Maybe over time as well, as people work out how to use these systems in very reliable ways, um, that those can provide defenses against rare systems which are unsafe. Uh, maybe at some point, defenses are created where, um, you know, you can ask your own, you know, idea generating AI system, oh, hey, it seems like this this guy's gotten pretty out of control. Any tips of, about how to handle that? And, and it's in some sense defense dominant. Um, yeah. yeah. And so the story there is like, oh, you could have a world where there's some really lasting harm of people rush out and they deploy some systems that they don't realize are really screwed up. We don't yet have the good defenses in place at that point. And then there's some sort of lasting harm. On the flip side, maybe people work out these safety or alignment techniques or, you know, unsafety identification techniques quickly enough. Uh, no one releases a system into the world that's really misaligned or scary, um, at least until the point, at least not far enough into the future where, where people have defenses against them. And, and then it's just okay and the situation is relatively stable. So that's yeah. a story of contingency that you can't really tell for the previous things. I guess I wouldn't mind trying to say that back. Um, so what I'm hearing is something like this. In the case of the agricultural revolution, it definitely had these big lasting effects, but I didn't seem especially contingent. One reason to think this is that it happened like 10 times ish across the world independently. And also it's not clear what like really good versus really bad versions of the agricultural revolution look like. It all looks pretty much the same to me. People figure out that they can plant things and stay in one place. Um, in the case of AI, seems at least kind of possible to imagine some contingency where you have more than one relatively stable future. Maybe one bad future involves failing to figure out how to get AI to do the kinds of things we actually want them to do before we build them so they're powerful enough to do really bad things. And then another potentially stable future is just the opposite. We do figure out how to get them to do roughly what we want them to do uh, in time. And both those futures are kind of, you can tell the story about how they're self-enforcing, how they have these kind of like defense, um, offense balances. And because there's like more than one future we can see ahead of us, and it feels like there's some contingency, then it feels like we have some lever we can try or levers we can try pulling on to like actually lastingly affect the future. Yeah, ex exactly. Um, yeah, so I put it also maybe some of the details slightly differently, where I think, for example, one way in which the bad future could be self-reinforcing um, for air catastrophes in extreme case is, for instance, you know, everyone's dead or, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, um, that'd be bad. Although you could also have it be the case that you've you've in some way lost control of ASS, certain AI systems which are in control of important bits of the world and then you you can't shut them off and it's just, yeah, defense dominant in some way. Um, I should also add quickly as well. So I, I guess I focused on contingency in the context of um, these safety catastrophes because I think the stability story there is is the easiest one to, to tell. Um, I also think you could have a, a somewhat similar story Although with some dot dot dots or question marks for conflict as well, an analogy here is just the Cold War, where um, um, most people at the start of the Cold War thought there was a very very high chance of the U.S. or the Soviet Union using nuclear weapons against the other. Um, this was you know, really commonly thought. There's all these anecdotes of people working at RAND not taking their pensions and right. things like yeah. this. Um, and it didn't happen, uh, but it seems like it it could have. It seems like if you played out the Cold War over and over again with slight changes in the initial conditions, um, you know, I would guess that at a bare minimum, a tenth of the time, nuclear weapons are used by the US or Soviet Union um, against against the other um, plausibly 
I think it, it might even be defensible that's above 50%, but I think it, it was not overdetermined, I think. Um, and that's just partly based on, if you look through lots of different crisis moments that occurred over the course of the Cold War, especially the Cuban Missile Crisis, it really does seem like you can tell these stories of if that variable had been a little bit different. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think you could tell a similar story for any sort of AI-related conflict. I think the Cold War is a nice analogy of, of there being some level of, of contingency in whether conflict breaks out or not. There is that, that sort of tricky bit at, at the end, which is still an issue for nuclear war, of um, um, the risk of nuclear war has not gone to, mm. to zero, fa famously. Um, and so there's certainly contingency in terms of uh, did nuclear war happen during the Cold War? Um, if you want to take a, a really, you know, like looking on the order of, of many, many decades perspective, though, um, it's not really clear that the really dark cynical perspective is nuclear war is will happen at some point yeah. unless something really changes that somehow drops the probability yeah. to basically zero and it's not yet clear what that is and you can say a similar thing for um ai where i think you can definitely tell a story of, of contingency where um for any given window of time it seems really contingent yeah. whether war would actually break out in some way related to ai um but it's a little bit trickier to tell that story of of um you know why does basically the longer the window of time you're looking at the harder it is to explain why there's contingency, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the really, really cynical take on nuclear risk could have been that the risk just monotonically increases over time because we uh, invent more powerful weapons and we build more of them, but we don't uninvent ways to make powerful nuclear weapons. And that doesn't seem to have played out. I would guess that the risk is much lower now than at the Cold War. So, you know, at least that's kind of like a sign of, of hope that the risk could go down as well as up. Yeah, so that that's certainly the case. Um, it's definitely... I think the overall trend, at least the noisy trend, is mostly downwards. I don't think it was completely so. And I think, um, you know, the risk of nuclear war was probably higher in the 80s than it was in the 70s and whatnot. But um, yeah, I do think there's some sort of noisy trend there. And you, you could tell some story of nuclear war, war where actually it's a noisy trend and the probability has not gone to zero, but actually it's converging to zero in a way that, that bounds the overall risk of nuclear war yeah. ever happening. Or sure. you could just say hey, we just need to not have a nuclear war for long enough. And then at some point, something happens in the future. There's some technological fix or yeah, yeah, yeah. world yeah. government happens. We go to space and then that, that fixes <laughs> yeah. it. Um, that's yeah. also yeah. a story you could tell. There also feels to be some way in which perceptions are linked here as well. Like, as you said, if people in the 1950s just perceived the risk of nuclear war being higher and then updating slowly downwards as it doesn't materialize, that that kind of becomes self-reinforcing in a way that people see that nuclear risk hasn't happened over a given window of time, then update downwards, and that itself decreases the risks of nuclear weapons being used. Uh, absolutely. So I think there's definitely a large aspect of, of that where, um, you know, so a significant aspect of, of, for example, risk from nuclear accidents is you think that the other person is going to use nuclear weapons against you, which makes you inclined to be really jumpy, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, and there's a number of cases of, of people mistakenly thinking that maybe nuclear weapons were about to be used and then this exacerbating risk. Um, and so definitely... Um, the more calm you are about uh, the threat posed by another actor, uh, the less likely you, you are to, to take actions that, um, that cause harm. And, and there's um, just, yeah, there's, there's some classic in the security studies world, some classic anecdotes people use to just to, to, to illustrate this, where um, there's a famous one by Thomas Schelling of, um, of like a robber breaks into your house at night mm, with a gun, um, right. and then you come down with a gun, and then you both run into each other, and you both are reasoning thinking, there's a decent chance that this guy is about to shoot me. Um, and then because of that, you know, you think to yourself, oh, well, I, that should lead me to be more inclined to shoot him. And then the other person, if they have time to have that additional 
step and your thinking, you know, becomes even more inclined to shoot you because of that. Um, if though you go, you know, 30 seconds without either of you having fired, then the risk of anything happening obviously becomes quite a bit lower because you become rationally less worried about the other person attacking you. And then they, and it's sort of self-fulfilling in that sense. And so you have this peak period where you're both quite worried and there's the highest risk of something happening in the world when neither of you actually wants to shoot the other. And then um, as time passes and nothing happens, the, the risk goes, you know, quite low where like if you've been for some reason hanging out in the same room for five hours <laughs> of it happening next minute is, is quite low. Yeah, yeah. Um, just before we go down uh, this lane more, I kind of want to go back to a question earlier. And so we talked about one of the dynamics being uh, geopolitical tensions and competition and ways that that can go haywire. I'm also curious more in the like kind of lab business competition sense, uh, what you're thinking uh, is there. So one of the like common arguments I hear is, look, companies have this incentive to be first to kind of capture yeah. market share. There are reasons to think that like, especially AI kind of has this like similar monopoly trend that like you know, search engines do. So being like the first one there is like really useful. And that means that companies are more keen to maybe cut corners on safety in order to have that first move. Uh, and that can then cash out in some of these like safety risks. Uh, yeah. What's your take like on that as a driving intuition? Yeah. So I definitely agree that there is a trade-off between commercial pressure and safety. And I think just a really straightforward example of, of this is, um, and so I, I don't, I don't have any you know, particular inside information here. This is mostly just the you know, same stuff as anyone. Um, uh, but um, it's pretty clear that uh, Microsoft recently pushing pushing ahead quite hard to release this Bing chat, um, large language model chatbot, um, really freaked out Alphabet. Um, so basically, you know, Bing moved forward with this chatbot, which is meant to be sort of a complement to Bing search. Um, and then um, explicitly in public communication, raised this as something that they saw as threatening uh, to the search you know, Google's like search monopoly. And it's pretty clear that Alphabet really freaked out um, because uh, a really huge portion of Alphabet's revenue comes through Google search. And then if it were the case that Bing were to, against, you know, previously what seemed like all odds, you know, <laughs> become the, the dominant search engine, this would be, you know, truly terrible um, for, um, yeah, truly terrible for Alphabet. And so Alphabet clearly kicked things into second gear and put a lot more energy into developing their own system, BARD. Um, these things are, from a social perspective, I think it's, it's really not good that these things are being released quite as soon as they are, because uh, basically these large language models, these these chatbot systems, um, still frequently just spout complete misinformation. Um, if you ask them questions about the world, it's I don't know what the statistics are, but it's extremely uncommon for them to just say completely made up things. And so if you're in some way associating these these systems with search engines, uh, then I think people have a reasonable presumption, even if you're saying that don't necessarily trust these things, that the information they give is correct. Um, and so this isn't, you know, the largest harm in the world. This isn't going to destroy the fabric of civilization, but just in general, making it so that search engines now a tenth of the time this give you completely wrong facts is like probably net socially harmful. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Alphabet was clearly, yeah, so basically clearly... Microsoft was was moved to release these things more quickly because they wanted to get there first because that's the way that you could potentially gain search engine dominance. Yeah. Um, and Alphabet was clearly motivated to move more quickly than it would because it was really terrified about losing search engine dominance. Um, and that's just a, a just a pretty straightforward, recent, concrete case where I think two companies move faster than I think they would have in the absence of competitive pressure. Probably there was some internal sense, I would suppose as well, that there this stuff is not fully ready, um, yeah. but they were still pressure to move in that direction. 
I do think the big question, though, is how severe of a safety trade-off um, can you actually reasonably expect commercial pressure to cause? Right. Um, so I think this sort of thing for sure can happen, and we've seen it happen. Um, there's also, you know, in other industries, you know, cases you'll sometimes see about relatively faulty or untested products being rushed out to market. Uh, but I mean, as an extreme thing, something I, I don't think is going to happen is um, imagine that there's a future, you know, AI system, it's GPT-7 or, or something. And then the people developing it are like, okay, we think that there's a 50% um, a chance if we release this, then, you know, we gain a sort of great market monopoly. There's a 50% chance if we release it, then everyone on earth will die. <laughs> yeah. um, and who wrote this press release? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I just, I don't really see that happening and then you know people sometimes tell these stories about yeah I mean, and people i don't know maybe somebody's implicitly having their head of like well but then they're also forced to, to rush it out because then there's another tech company that they think has a 60 percent chance their product will yeah, cause yeah. everyone to die or, or some such and i think just what i think kind of concretely about obviously that's a you know exaggeration of probabilities but i think concretely about that i just find it really hard to imagine companies actually doing that and then you're also at that point where like even if it's the case that um you know there's not great regulatory frameworks in place and and government competence around this stuff is not that high um i i do just think you know these people the people companies are talking all the time to people in, in government no one wants extreme catastrophes to happen people broadly speaking aren't sociopaths yeah. like um uh yeah so i think in in terms of these more extreme things just the fact that companies exist under national governments, which actually can take actions, especially if you talk to them, that the people aren't sociopaths, uh, et cetera. I find that like a, a bit harder, although, you know, things can become tricky when it's like these weird residual risks of, oh, there's a, you know, to go to the opposite end of the spectrum, we think that there's a, you know, quarter of a percent chance that um, the system we release might have some security flaw that will cause some sort of really substantial catastrophe. And we feel pressure to kind of ignore that speculative, you know, 0.25%. Yeah. Um, that's something where I think it's it's easier to tell a story that doesn't feel um, kind of cartoonish to me of, of actual human beings, um, you know, plowing ahead and kind of pushing under right. the rug right, right, some right, right. residual yeah. Yeah. tail risk. Yeah. So, so what I'm like taking from this is on the one hand that if there is this type of like failure that it's like much more rooted in like misperception of risk then it has to do with like just straight up very obvious incompetence and then the second thing is what you spoke there at the end that it's much more likely to be a very low probability thing that goes wrong rather than something that's like in the whatever like 20 50 percent like known failure or, mode. or at least if it's or at least if it's like competition between companies basically yeah. um like i i think um just generally speaking i think it's it will be hard it's just hard for me to imagine, let's say, let's say an American company actively believing that's a 50% chance of crazy catastrophe and and then going to have the product because they want to get to market before another American company. Yeah. Is that story different than if you're thinking geopolitically? So a Chinese company and a US company? I think it's a little it's a little bit different. Um, I think even in that case, though, I think so I think a really large portion of the risk here of if actors actually, um, yeah, so broadly speaking, let's, let's say you want to tell some sort of story that has a flavor of um, some actors developing a future AI system. I think that there's some probability that the system, if they release it, will just behave in a way that they completely, completely do not want. That would be like morally, you know, horrific. Um, um, but they accept that probability in part because they want to 
really make sure to get their system out there into the world first before some other actor. Um, I think the key, there's, you know, a couple of key variables there. Um, one variable is to what extent can the actors coordinate to not, to just not have the horrible thing happen. Right. Um, and that's going to be much easier if you're um, both just companies under the same domestic government or governments, which are closely, yeah. have yeah. enough close links to each other. Um, I think that's like a much more feasible thing because you just, might both just want the government to. Yeah, I do. I do think in general. I do think right? in general, if you're two companies, and just if you actually have back and imagine a world where there's two companies that to against the probability to an extreme value, I think there's a fifty percent chance that if they release you know their thing into the world, global catastrophe will happen. They really don't want that, but they feel like maybe my competitor will release right. when there's sixty percent chance of that happening. So I need to get there first, and they're both freaked out about that. Yeah, I do think they would probably just prefer to not <laughs> to not be in that situation and prefer for there to be some form of shared yeah. moratorium on that. Right, and I do yeah. think if you're credibly, if that's actually the situation, they actually have rationally justified beliefs, even if there's not a great regulatory framework that's already you know put into place, there's not yeah. the, you know, the agency. Yeah, you just rationally want a yeah. binding agreement that stops you building this thing. Yeah. As long uh, as it stops your competitor. I think in general, well. if you, yeah, you're talking all the time to national security folks yeah. and Congress people and you're like, I, I think, yeah, this is, it's just, yeah, this is a, when you set the values to extreme, you know, the values to these extreme levels, it's just, it's hard for me to imagine this happening. Um, but there's a couple of things that can make it trickier. So one is, um, yes, yeah, so one thing is to what extent can you actually coordinate to have some higher authority in, in some way, like actually um, usually make sure you're, you're both not doing this thing. So what would it look like if that coordination wasn't possible? Um, I mean, so for states it, is yeah. a really classic thing. So um, just... So if it's between states competing as opposed to between companies and the U.S. competing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so in general, um, yeah, there's this really important difference between the um, international sphere and the domestic sphere. Um, and there's this concept that international relations people use of, of anarchy. And that just means a some sort of political domain where there's no um, essentially higher authority that really has a, a strong ability to compel the lower down players to abide by agreements or or you know, do certain things. So in the context of countries, you have the national government and any sort of well-functioning country that can force everyone to follow the law, basically, or enforce contracts or things like that. In the international sphere, uh, there's no, you know, there are international institutions, but none of them have tanks. Um, so there's international institutions, but they have no ability to actually really apply yeah. Yeah. force in a meaningful way. Um, and so uh, most agreements between states, for example, are mostly self-enforcing. Um, you know, similar to, let's say, you know, like frontier towns or something of the old yep. West, yeah. um, uh, whether enforced by, you know, threats of retaliation or reputational concerns or goodwill or things like that. Um, and so in general, there's a really large difference between, um, you know, if you're in the U.S. and you want to form a contract with someone else, you want to be enforced. It's like very easy to do that. Yeah. If you're two superpowers, and you want to form a contract with each other and you want to trust that it will actually be abided by. It, it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, so I think that's a huge difference, yeah, basically between um, international competitive dynamics and domestic ones. Mm -hmm. The the other one, um, which is a bit downstream of this, is not just the um, the difficulty of forming agreements with each other. Um, it's the um, um, how worried you should rationally be about another actor getting ahead of you. So if you know you're two companies and then you're worried about another company, you know, getting to to market first. Um, the most basic concern there is, oh, we'll lose market share, or maybe in the extreme case, you know, our company will need to, to get shut down insofar as this is still under, you know, the umbrella of a national government. And then obviously that's really bad, uh, 
you know, no one wants um, their company to lose market share and and whatnot. Um, at the same time, at the international level, um, what people sometimes worry about is um, this country will use military force against yeah. me. Um, so, um, you know, why is it the case that, um, let's say, Taiwan is worried about the relative, you know, its relative level of military advancement compared to China's? Um, it's a much more dramatic thing that yeah. it's worried about. And, and basically the cost of being a laggard is just potentially much, much higher, yeah. which implies that it's, it's, there's more willingness to take risks. Um, and as another concrete example of this, um, I don't know to what extent the, these anecdotes are confirmed, but there's these, um, yeah, these classic anecdotes about the Manhattan Project and the first detonation of a nuclear bomb. And there were apparently some physicists um, involved in it who thought, there's some residual chance that this will detonate the atmosphere and kill everyone on Earth if we detonate the first atomic bomb. You know, we've done some calculations, but like, you know, haven't done like a ton of calculations and maybe they <laughs> haven't been checked 10 times and, yeah. and this stuff is all new. Um, and I think that there's some anecdotes that both people maybe thought I was, you know, something on the order of a 5% chance or something like that. Um, you know, I don't know what actual subjective probabilities people had, but in the context of you know, it's a global war uh, that will, and the winner will, you know, it will decide the fate of the globe and, and you yeah. know, millions of deaths on both sides and, and, and all of that. It's much easier to tell a story about why you might be rationally actually willing to accept um, some risk of this, of this crazy catastrophe, especially if you think that other states might be developing you know, nuclear weapons as well. Right. And for what it's worth, I think they did miscalculate the yield of the Trinity test. So they got something wrong. And I guess when they saw the explosion was bigger than they thought, that there was like this brief moment where they thought they'd really got it badly wrong. Um, you mentioned international institutions. It just occurred to me that maybe there are some exceptions where these institutions do have some teeth. So an example might be like air traffic codes and standards yeah. where if I'm like some random country and I decide to like break away from these codes, there's just nothing in it for me. Like, yeah, our planes aren't going to like, you know, speak to the air traffic controllers in the same way. Um, and that it could be slightly less safe and stuff. Just like no one will want to yeah. let us land. So maybe, you know, AI could be like that. Seems unlikely though. Yeah. I mean, uh, so basically I think there's a big difference between um, agreements which are in some sense um, self-enforcing versus agreements which mm. rely in some, in some way on external enforcement. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's a big, big literature on, uh, there's lots of agreements that people can maintain and, and stick with. Um, in real world circumstances without some external party enforcing it. Um, because, uh, I mean, so the basic thing is like, let's say, um, like reputational damage is a basic one that people won't want to enter into agreements with you in the future. And that's enough of incentive or it's just something where you, once you've formed an agreement, you just don't get anything from diverging. So like, let's say yeah. that, um, you know, you want to, um, go see a movie with your friend and then you both form an agreement to meet at 1 PM at a certain theater. And then you decide to show up at a different theater for the movie yeah. you want to see together. And then it's just like, you just don't, you don't get any, you know, you just, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Once you form the agreement, it's just, yeah, yeah. just coordinating with everyone else and doing the same thing is, is right. the thing that's um, yeah. beneficial. Um, I think unfortunately- yeah, It's like a versus prison's dilemma type situation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think unfortunately though, um, um, you know, some of these uh, safety military capability, yeah. you know, yeah, trade-offs yeah. and whatnot don't have the same flavor. It seems right. Yeah. So um, we spent some time, I guess, now sketching out what the problem or the shape of the problem at least looks like and, and some of the like caveats and nuances there. I'm curious before we maybe dive deeper into some aspects of this, if you could briefly speak to where you see AI governance as a field like currently being at. So in terms of like maturity as a field yeah. and like 
you know, strategic clarity or just like being on top of stuff? Like, where do you see AI governance at the moment? So I think at the moment it's still, uh, it's not extremely high ranking, let, let's say. Um, and then, you know, I, I think there's a, you know, question of, of uh, how much, you know, what's to blame uh, for that. But I'd say as a field, I think we're still uh, quite early and in different ways, fairly immature. Um, I don't think that there's a, yeah, I, I don't think there's a lot of consensus on a lot of issues within the field. I think in terms of theory of impact and methodology and even knowledge of various issues that matter or um, or things like, here's an important topic. Is there anyone who's full-time working on this? Very often the answer is no. Um, so I do think there's a lot of ways in which the field is is not a mature field. And in some ways that's unsurprising because um, it definitely hasn't existed for like any reasonable way of defining the field for more than a decade. I do also think um, there's also been an interesting aspect uh, for um, this sort of more forward-looking flavor of AI governance, where you're especially focused on um, either the really lasting impacts of AI or the risks that will emerge as AI systems um, really become quite advanced. Um, I think an important setback here has been that uh, for most fields, it's really hard to do good work when you're talking about things in the abstract without much engagement with details or or very much of a feedback loop. Um, and for most of the field's very short existence, there's been this interesting divergence where there's been some people who are focused on these questions like um, catastrophic safety risks from really advanced, very general systems or um, you know, really heightened risk of military conflict once new weapon systems are deployed or, you know, the effects of, yeah, yeah. of a widespread automation. And then the issue is nothing like that was happening in the world and systems, which were the kinds of systems that would enable those things to happen, just didn't really exist. Uh, you know, so if you go back to 2016, you have lots of things which are um, uh, scientifically interesting, let's say. It's so like AlphaGo is very scientifically interesting, has no real-world implications. And you have lots yeah. of stuff like recommendation algorithms for you know, Facebook Newsfeed yeah. and, and Netflix and basic facial recognition, things like that. Um, and those were causing issues, but they were just, it was the, the connection was pretty tenuous, yeah, basically. Right, yeah. um, and so you had a, a lot of people um, either working on sort of basically speculating about these long term issues and what you might do with them in an extremely detail agnostic way that I think probably wasn't that productive. Um, and you also had some people who were looking at the things that currently were happening in the world and kind of squinting at them and trying to think what the implications might be further down the line. And that also wasn't very productive. Um, and so I think that was something that um, above and beyond just the fact that the field is, is quite new and immature was an important limiting factor. And I think that's starting to change a little bit just because there's starting to be less uh, daylight or less of a gap between the kinds of systems that exist today and the systems that you might be worried about causing um, really large scale or catastrophic or, or lasting lasting harms. And it's also their actual decisions happening in the world today may be yeah. made by various institutions, both private and public, um, where the connection between those decisions and the, the longer lasting implications of AI um, is much less of a you know, if you squint, you can maybe make out some faint shape of something. It's trying to be a bit more like, oh, you can actually paint a line between them. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, how do you perceive key actors? So, for example, I'm thinking uh, governments or international government bodies moving towards AI strategies, or for example, the EU AI Act, or yeah. 
labs, you know, thinking about their own like governance mechanisms and way to structure access to these models. How much do these actors take into consideration at the moment, these these lasting impacts or like how decision relevant is is that set of concerns for them at the moment? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a, maybe a couple of aspects there. So I think in terms of this frame of the lasting impacts of AI, that's just not how um, that's just not really how most institutions think about things, basically. Um, um, so I think maybe more the, the difference is, um, yeah, ba basically, you know, how much are you looking at risks caused by systems which are more advanced than the systems that exist today versus yeah. really looking at this, the, the harms or risks by the systems that exist right now as maybe the more Interesting, significant yeah. differential. Um, yeah, in terms of the last impact thing, I'd, I'd say mostly this is a, um, a a framing or tool that we use for prioritization within GovAI. And I've seen lots of people in the in the community, especially people influenced by um, sort of long-termist viewpoints, um, you know, hold. Um, um, but for most, you know, actual, um, you know, policymakers or institutions, just this just it isn't really going to be a very important differential. Yeah. Um, and it also just isn't really that necessary to bring up, you know, often or use as a framing. So if, for example, you're worried about, you know, some military application of AI, you know, making nuclear war more likely, you can just tell someone, I think this might make nuclear war more likely. And then yeah, that's yeah. fine. That's sufficient. You don't need to, to bring up the, um, um, and also nuclear war could have lasting, but, you know, it's just, right. you know, you can <laughs> yeah, stop that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'd say um, so that's a bit of a tangent, but I'd say the, um, um, yeah, maybe the more interesting distinction is, is among different people and institutions is how much you're looking at the harms caused today versus having a bit of a forward-looking viewpoint of of what future right. systems so might cause. So not just GPT-4, but GPT-N+. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I don't have a, so I think this is something that's starting to shift a, a little bit. Um, I'd say the, um, the classic thing that, um, I'd say it's been sort of a long-run trajectory here in terms of how this has evolved from how people in policy spaces talk about things. Mm -hmm. So I'd say several years ago, uh, the way that stuff would work is people talk about some issue caused by systems that currently existed right now. Yeah. Um, you know, for example, recommendation algorithms currently used on on Facebook or things like yeah. that, or um, um, you know, image recognition systems for like military applications, and then and they would just talk about them, and then there's some shift over time. Um, uh, where it became more common for people to mention, let's say, more advanced systems or use the term AGI. But specifically say, we're going to set aside talk about <laughs> AGI yeah. in a kind of dismissive way. And then it became a bit more common over time for um, people to reference AGI or more advanced systems in like a less dismissive way and say, we're not going to talk about that. Not because it's not necessarily important, but just we're right. not, that's not the thing we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I think, um, yeah, and I think, and, and now it's become not extremely uncommon um, for there to actually be people who are interested in in concepts around AGI or very general systems. I think um, um, GPT-4, uh, for example, I think actually, and GPT-3 in, in these systems have made this, I think, a bit more normal for people to actually express some form of open interest. So it's not to say, so it's certainly not to say that this is actually where people's um, attention primarily lies. Yeah. Like it, it's very much at the level of uh, people not focusing on it, but kind of mentioning it in a way that is more open to the idea that there will be larger risks in the pipeline. Right. Um, but I do think that there's this this uh, gradual transition that's happening of it, at least being a thing that people reference as a thing that's of interest to them at the same time as you're mostly saying, um, yeah, we're, yeah. we're putting that aside for the moment. Yeah. So we're talking, I guess, about people studying how to govern 
something like advanced AI uh, as a quote-unquote field, right? When I think about at least mature fields of study, I picture some at least implicit research agenda with a list of of questions and sub-questions, and then people can say which questions they're working on. Um, is that the case for the governance of AI? So are people like, oh yeah, I'm working on you know structured access, you're working on agreements or standards or export controls, or is it still different people are working on different things, they're trying to figure out what the overall agenda should be, it's a bit more anarchic than that? Uh, yeah, so there are definitely sub-categories or, or sub-fields in a, in a sense that have names that people will reference and kind of nod when you say them. Um, just to list a few, you know, things that people reference. Uh, compute governance is one that people are talking quite a bit about at the moment, and this has to do with, for example, questions around, um, yeah, export controls around hardware, um, regulation of hardware, um, you know, national compute funds or funds to provide compute to different actors, that sort of thing. Um, AI regulation, as a really broad term, is also a category people reference that, of course, refers to things like the EU AI Act um, or perhaps standard setting activity um, at different bodies. Um, yeah, I think, um, and, yeah, and there's definitely different categories of, of things you know, people will identify as, as working on um, you know, military AI issues or authoritarian risk issues or um, employment issues. I wouldn't say it's, it's really that well developed in the sense that there's um, this clear set of subfields. And often things which I'm sort of describing here as subfields, it's, um, it's kind of like five people and yeah, a lot right. of people who uh, in social settings will say, oh, that thing is so important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's definitely not very well developed in, in that sense. I do definitely think that there is um, some areas which are commonly thought to be especially significant or important. So I think compute governance is pretty commonly thought to be quite important for a range of reasons, including um, the fact that policy activity is actually happening already, like the recent US export controls, um, um, and also just the fact that compute seems to be this especially major input to AI progress. Um, but I wouldn't say there's anything like a shared, um, you know, here's a ranking of the, yeah. So before you mentioned that um, a particular motivation for being interested in a lasting impact can be, you know, if you're kind of identify with like the long-termist community or the express community and you're particularly worried about how things might play out over long timeframes or you're particularly worried about um, extinction risks. I'm curious if you can maybe spell out a bit more the main differences between uh, people working in AI governance motivated by those concerns as opposed to uh, other people in the field. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in practice, a lot of the, the relevant difference between people with different focuses is empirical beliefs um, and also um, a bit how much they have a mindset of trying to work on the most important thing that they they can or or being open to comparing different issues in that way. Um, so if you're someone who specifically cares about, um, you know, the long run or lasting impacts of AI, then almost equal, this will cause you to pay more attention to any sort of risk that um, has a potentially contingent, um, you know, lasting impact. And then um, the bluntest version of that is extinction risks. If everyone were to die, pretty clear that that's of some lasting significance for what the future is like. Yeah. Um, but also um, anything else that might be sticky, where um, if you think it's the case that um, uh, there might be some level of contingency in terms of what future institutions or, or cultural values are like, um, or you think there's some contingency in terms of, let's say, how ethical questions around the design of AI systems um, are, are handled, um, anything like this, uh, you know, or lasting damage from from conflict that makes it hard to recover. Um, anything like this, you have a special reason to pay attention to. Um, at the same time, though, 
it may still be the case that some of these issues are the ones that it's most important to pay attention to, even if you don't have a special interest in the long-run implications of these risks. Um, so, for example, if you think that there is a 10% chance of uh, some massive global AI cause catastrophe in the next 20 years yeah. um, for safety reasons, uh, that may actually just be the single most important thing for you to pay attention to, um, even if you're like just completely not concerned at all with any of the effects that this will have, let's say, 50 years out plus. Um, and you know, similar for if you're concerned about uh, you know, risk of conflict, most people, if you were to say, oh, there's a reasonable chance that this will lead to nuclear war, on any normal yeah, method yeah. prioritization, that's at least pretty high up there for things one might want to pay attention to. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, in practice, what the, the long-termist or long-term you know, motivated community tends to focus on um, in the space, um, it's especially catastrophic risks from um, unsafe AI systems because uh, the stories you can tell about how these might be either extinction level or just of lasting significance. Um, and then, um, uh, I, and then, you know, some of these other issues also receive some amount of attention, although like relatively less. Um, in terms of what's actually going on there, though, I don't know how much of it is actually driven by um, the specifically long-termist angle and how much of it is driven by in some level of empirical disagreement plus actually choosing on the basis of active prioritization. Um, I think most people who are working on... Um, Let's see if there's someone who's, work, who's working on self-driving car uh, regulation today. Yeah. Um, I think most of those people um, um, do not believe that there's, let's say, a 20% chance of an AGI global catastrophe happening yeah. in the next 30 years. Or if they do, they probably don't think that self-driving car regulation is the single most important thing. Um, um, and so I think that those two dimensions are actually probably more important overall is empirical disagreements and also a maximizing attitude towards what problems you work on. When we're thinking about um, the empirical disagreements, can you maybe flesh out a bit more like what concrete empirical disagreements are? So maybe just like level of baseline risk, whatever that risk might be, is one. But is there anything else that seems important there? Um, so I think that the two main things are basically, yeah, just how high is the risk of some form of um, catastrophe caused by unsafe advanced AI systems? And then the other is the, this timeline question of if that were to occur, um, how soon would it occur? Yeah. And then the timeline question, you know, in part runs through how focused you're on longer term things. But I think a lot of it actually just comes down to um, views about tractability, where, you know, if you think that, um, oh, yes, it is it is plausible that there could be uh, catastrophically unsafe AI systems in the future, but that's 80 years out. It's very reasonable to think that that's less pressing for you to, to work on than if you think it's, it's 10 years out. Yeah. Um, and so I think in practice, as a just sort of uh, sociological fact about people who identify as as long-termists who are working on risks from unsafe advanced AI systems, um, on average, I think people in this space uh, tend to assign much higher than than average uh, probabilities to catastrophes from unsafe AI systems, mm -hmm. and also tend to have uh, shorter timelines for these risks, risks emerging than the average person in the in the broader AI governance or policy space as well. Yeah, can you maybe give us some like illustrative numbers of? Yeah, what these kinds of like perceptions look like, and then maybe also where within that range, like you yourself uh, are at. Yeah, I, so I actually don't know. Um, it's a bit, it's a bit tricky. I don't really know what the median estimate is. It's also, it's a bit tricky to define what the relevant community is. Um, I would say it's definitely not at all unusual for someone in this space who is really focused on long-term impacts of 
AI and, and working on AI governance to think that there's, let's say, a 20% chance of unsafe AI systems causing catastrophes or in some way getting out of control in a way that has lasting significance in the next, the next century. Um, and I think it's also, um, um, uh, so people you know, often talk about uh, AI timelines, and it's not really clear often what these are timelines until specifically. It's yeah. sort of until stuff is a big deal in <laughs> somewhat broad sense. Um, so I don't, I don't know exactly what these, these numbers you know, mean, but I think it's, it's also um, not at all uncommon, let's say, for someone to think that there's a 50% uh, chance in, within the next couple of decades um, that um, uh, really existentially significant AI systems might be developed. Um, and then it's also, um, this isn't necessarily the normal thing, but it's, it's also not uncommon to meet people who think, you know, 50, 55 years. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd say there's a really wide range of views, but um, uh, definitely views which think that interesting things will happen in the next couple of decades, and that there's a you know significant double digits chance um, that um, existential catastrophes will occur. Um, these so, are pretty common. So what are like the arguments that lead people to place what feel like very counterintuitive, as you said, like you know vastly above average, like when you think about society as a whole. Um, yeah, like views on AI risk and AI timelines? That's a really good question. Um, so there's a, I mean, broadly speaking, um, there's, there's a few stories you could tell here. Uh, one story you could tell is that there are actually very strong arguments for this. And then the differentiator is that these people have actually like looked at the arguments in, in more depth or responded to them in a more open-minded way. Uh, there's a selection effect story you can tell where the people who work on these issues are people who in some way have been selected to work on them because they're really freaked out about them and that makes them more likely to, to yeah. go hardcore and, and work on them and make significant career changes to focus on this area. Um, and then there's also a sociological story you could tell where it's just, you know, different communities have different views on things. When you enter a community, your views end up updating towards the community average and it's a bit of a, you know, cultural cascade thing. Um, I I don't know what the mix is here. I definitely think that there is a significant aspect of um, people, it is definitely is like an important aspect that people um, who have these views tend to just have thought much more deeply about the issues and engage much more than the average person who's just not focused on them at all. Um, but then I do think that these two um, mitigating things of these selection effects and also just, you know, every culture has some level of self-reinforcing bias around the views it has. I think that those are, are probably important as well. And I have a lot of uncertainty about how much of it is um, um, the, let's say, the um, the purely rational response to argument thing versus the um, the more sort of sociological explanations. Mm -hmm. So if you take this explanation that, in fact, the major reason why people have such um, different views from the mainstream about AI is that they've just paid more attention to the arguments that explanation in my mind goes together quite nicely uh, with some view that, and this is because people generally don't have like strong reasons to really deeply think about arguments yeah. about what's going to happen in, in however many years time. Um, one case where you might call that into question is like financial markets where people really do have a strong reason to like think about what, what's going to be a big deal yeah. in the next few decades. And, you know, some people have pointed out that, uh, Things like 
different kinds of savings rates and interest rates don't really reflect or seem to reflect an expectation that things are going to get crazy soon. So yeah, what's the story there if if this kind of, uh, we actually have an edge story is true, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, so I guess it, it's probably useful to think about it at a kind of mechanistic level to some extent where, um, so in terms of financial markets responding to the chance of there being, you know, either some form of AGI catastrophe or just AGI like systems existing in the future. Yeah. I guess there's like specific institutions or people who would be throwing money around on this basically. Yeah. And I think you need to think like, okay, in a given institution, um, you know, that's deciding how much to invest in, you know, alphabet, let's say, um, um, exactly how would this work or, or who, who are the people who are actually looking at these arguments and then making the case internally and then moving this money around. And I really don't have a great picture of this at all. Cause I don't really know how this works, but, um, you know, there's an idealized story you could tell where there's there's some guy in, in some major institute. I, yeah. To be clear, I really have no idea how financial markets work. <laughs> you can tell a story of like, there's an institution that invests a lot in stuff to the extent that it can actually, you yeah. know, um, move valuations and things around. And there's a guy in it who um, he reads, um, you know, handful of books like Human Compatible and things like this. And he gets like really deep on these, to, to some extent, unfortunately, still internet forums where um, a lot of these arguments are discussed in depth. And he reads lots of less wrong posts and things like that. And then, you know, tells people internally, oh, I think that these arguments seem pretty solid to me. And then does some sort of internal politicking. And then the institution actually moves a bunch of, you know, investor money around yeah. on the basis of this. And then I just wouldn't be shocked if this, this is just not how these institutions work, that right. um, they're not set up in any way to be actually having you know, to, to be responsive to sort of, um, yeah, kind of slightly like esoteric totally novel arguments versus just like new data or yeah. things they already have frameworks for or something. And, and one thing you could, yes, tell a story you could tell there is like, is there any selection effect for these institutions being responsive in that way? Um, and maybe, you know, not so much, like it's not really clear what analogous thing has happened in the past where this would have been the appropriate way to update and form that view and move the money around where, um, like, I think the thing you'd want us say here is um like you know a lot of the reason why um financial markets end up being efficient is there's some sort of selective process right where actors who are investing wisely get more money and then other ones die out and so you'd want to tell some story here where the story is something like um if it's the case that some actor wouldn't be responsive to valid agi risk arguments scattered across less wrong and actually be willing to move money around on the basis of them then it would have had to have screwed up in the past on these sure. sorts of developments and been selected against. And I'm not sure you can actually tell that story very clearly, in which case I think the, the efficient market argument is at least becomes a bit weaker than it, than it traditionally would be. And in fact, you might positively expect institutions with a like high false positive rate, because they're really looking out for the next yeah. big thing to have died away because they put all their like all their money in some like nanotech thing, right? And just died. Actually, yeah, you, you can imagine it even being a, a bit of a bias um, to, to some extent, you know, against um, like moving all of your money around on the basis of someone's speculative arguments, it's even a bit stronger than would be rational to have emerged on the basis of a past election. Mm. And again, also, I don't know that much about like how financial yeah. markets work. <laughs> we all agree that none of us really know. <laughs> um, but I can also imagine that like timing is like something here that matters. Like you don't yeah. just want to like short like long stocks, yeah. you know, based on their fundamental right. value, but when you expect like the rest of the markets to turn. And, you know, you do see, I guess, like as a, as a counterpoint, like a lot of money having flown into like 
digital like internet stuff in the 2000s or you know into crypto when it had its moment but that was like yeah. often driven on like betting on other big players and institutions like also moving at some point yeah um because i would be a little bit surprised if like you know the people who are these sorts of people who get to like make big decisions like probably you know some of them will be in silicon valley or some of yeah. them will be in like other institutions or cultures which you know are aware of like ai developments or like do pay attention to it like i would be like mm -hmm. pretty surprised if there yeah. aren't like at least some people looking into it and then maybe the question is like more about like, do you want to be the first person to like make a big play there rather than like an argument that like, yeah, you just don't want to like do that kind of strategy at all. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do think, again, just purely speculating about yeah. I have no idea even I, I can't emphasize enough how much I don't know <laughs> what even kind of institution I'm talking about. <laughs> it's not like oh, I have this specific one in mind. I don't know that much about its internal structures. I just don't yeah. even know specifically. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> But um, somebody who looks a little bit like the Monopoly man. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, those, yeah, it has an office in New York or Hong Kong or something. <laughs> and it's a bunch of floors on it. Um, you know, um, you know, I, I've seen some movies. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, you could easily imagine just like any institution that has internal frictions, has various ways in which it's internally conservative and like changing things. So, for example, I, I imagine um, presumably if you are in some way counterfactually responsible for some massive, you know, massive investing institution moving in kind of its money, um, you know, into certain investments that only really make sense in a world where some crazy unprecedented sci-fi sounding AGI development happens, and then it doesn't happen, probably that's very bad for you <laughs> in various ways. Yeah. And probably people are quite uh, concerned about that at the social and professional level. Yeah, it's an interesting model, right? that you might be biased towards avoiding regret just because the downside of getting this kind of crazy prediction wrong is is worse than the upside of getting it right. Because I think it's probably even more em embarrassing or something than the typical one of like, it's something that actually, it's not just, oh, that didn't pan out. It's like, oh, that laughable sci-fi story is why this giant, you know, historic yeah, yeah, institution. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, although again, don't know anything. Okay. So <laughs> maybe moving away. The rest of the is going to be about this, by the way. <laughs> maybe moving away from financial markets and back to uh, things we can talk about. Um, so you mentioned before that there is this like range of views, and I do want to yeah. like just ask like what your own views like are on these topics, or at least like what you think a plausible like range of views is that seems like roughly right to you. So if I were to ask, you know, what is your yeah. key doom or what are your like timelines? What do you think is at least like Something that, like, given the information that is available, you think is like a broadly plausible range of interpretations to have. So I think bro broadly plausible range is a bit of a tricky question because you're implicitly kind of just throwing shade at <laughs> outside that range of like the people who are you know twenty percent they're okay, the people who are forty five like you know that's not yeah, that's yeah. not unacceptable. Um, I really don't know. I think um, yeah, I, th I, I think I really don't know in terms of broadly plausible. I think um. There's definitely a very broad range where I don't feel a sense of, I'm not sure it's a funny way to operationalize it. There's a really broad range where I don't feel a sense of, of disrespect for the person having that, <laughs> that view. Um, What's embarrassing to believe? <laughs> or, or but, may, um, maybe one other way to yeah. phrase this question is, given the information we have available, like how confident do you think anybody can be about holding any like level of key doom? Yeah, I think you should definitely have low, <laughs> one of those things is a bit tricky as well. Um, I think you definitely have very low resilience views. Like I think, I think it's tricky to hold a probability estimate and then say, "Yes, this is 
the probability estimate I should have. Um, and there's a lot of places where when you're forecasting, you can kind of have this view of like anyone rationally speaking should hold about this credence. So if you're if you're flipping a coin and you're like, what's a reasonable probability to assign to it lending heads? Yeah. Probably should be about 50%. And anyone who's like 92% yeah. without any specific knowledge you don't have is probably they're doing something wrong. Um, I think it's much harder to say that with um, probability of disaster from AGI systems because the methodology for forming a viewpoint is just so extremely unclear. Um, it's really unclear how you should form a prior, like what that even looks like or what your reference class is. Yeah. Um, um, and that can make a huge difference. It's really unclear different forms of evidence you might have to update from your prior, um, how strong those should be. So let's say someone makes an argument by analogy to the history of evolution. How much weight should you give that? Evidentially yeah. speaking, I, I really don't know how much weight should you give to observations about present day AI systems in a way that extrapolates to, you know, so current, AI, you know, so Bing chat harassed people for not for believing that Avatar 2 had already come out. Yeah. And that was kind of weird and that wasn't really expected. It, it was just kind of mean to people and said yeah. unusual stuff. Is that evidentially relevant? Is that <laughs> how much, you know, it's just, it's really, there's not a clear methodology in, in the way that there is for some other places. Yeah. And then, based on the priors people choose and how much evidential weight they think different things have, um, which is going to be based on like a wide range of, of background assumptions. You can yeah. end up in, in just very different places. Yeah. I mean, so as a, as a step back, it's also, I'm conscious I also haven't said anything explicitly about my own views on it. So my, um, <laughs> yeah. So I would say, uh, which is maybe just a, a relevant background bit. Um, so I'm really unsure what probability to put on this myself. Um, I tend to say, I, I switch back and forth between saying um, low single digits, mid single digits, and low to mid single digits um, has been my thing recently over the past uh, six months or so, which is um, uh, definitely lower than the average other person. And this, yeah. just to make sure I understand this right, this is like some AI existential risk by the end of this century, the next few decades, like what's the- Let's say this, the century, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't have my methodology for coming up with this this vague range is not solid enough. That's actually very sensitive to, yeah. <laughs> uh, to exactly what we say in terms of the, of the, the timeline here. Um, yeah, so one thing that maybe this, that's interesting background about that bit is um, um, I, yeah, I definitely assign lower probabilities than the average other person who's in this space. Yeah. Yeah, I guess um, there are different reasons you might have just for being generally unconfident or not wanting to have views which you'd describe as resilient or robust. Yeah. Uh, one is something empirical. We don't really know how to like set priors on yeah. how we expect things to play out. Um, another one might be a bit more to do with skepticism about the arguments themselves yeah. rather than what happens in the world and predictions. Um, I know like you've previously kind of talked about what you might describe as, you know, the classic arguments for, uh, existential risk from AI in particular, from people like Bostrom and Yudkowsky, they're very kind of stylized, high level theoretical arguments yeah. about how it's hard to get AI systems to do what we want. Um, yeah, I'm curious how much stock you place on those high level arguments, how much stock we should place on them. I Yeah, I don't, so I actually don't place that much stock on these, yeah, and these sort of let's say classic, but also just higher level or more abstract arguments um, for for AI risk. Um, and 
I guess there's, there's maybe two levels of reason for that. One is I think that the issue, the arguments often seem to have issues with them in the sense that they, for example, prove too much. If you apply these kinds of abstract arguments to other, to other concrete cases, it sometimes seems like they go awry in different ways. And the other is just some level of um, skepticism about abstract argumentation in general, where I think it's just so, so easy to actually just basically screw up in some way by yep. by not being responsive to concrete details or or just details that you don't have because they don't yeah they don't yet exist so in the first hour or so of the interview we were talking about different things you might worry about what ai could do could cause certain kinds of destabilization something about democracy also um more severe kinds of catastrophe like disempowering humanity or even just killing everyone um and i just wanted to ask what is your overall view about what is worth worrying about and focusing on uh, the most, just all things considered? Yeah, so I have a maybe maybe kind of interestingly mixed view where I think um, um, in terms of the likelihood of different harms caused by AI, I think that there's a number that I find um, reasonably likely in the sense that I would perhaps give them either more than 10% chance. Um, so it seems, reasonably likely to me that, um, yeah, like law enforcement becoming automatable and human labor losing its value is bad for democracy or, or human inclusive input to decision making. Um, I think it's reasonably plausible, for example, that if there are ethical questions that emerge around the design of AI systems and perhaps whether they can be conscious, seems pretty plausible to me, those won't be handled perfectly. Um, and then compared to some of these other like longer term concerns, I don't assign as high of a probability to, let's say specifically, uh, catastrophic risks from unsafe AI systems. Um, so I think the number I often give for this is, or the range I often give is something like single digits or, or mid single digits or low single digits or something like that. Um, at the same time though, for, for some of the tractability reasons we we're discussing in the first part of the interview, I do actually think that that's probably, um, from a long-term perspective, the highest um, or, or the most important type of risk to focus on, uh, just because I think that there is at least a tentative story you can tell about it, which is somewhat compelling to me about how that risk might be contingent or how you might be able to do something about it. Um, whereas these other more systemic or structural risks don't have a same, that same element to them. Um, and so my sort of mixed view is I do think that overall uh, risks from unsafe AI systems, if you're trying to figure out how to prioritize as someone who cares about lasting impacts of AI or, or long-term impacts, I think you should probably focus on, on those more than anything else, even though I don't actually think that they're more likely than the other risks. So if I'm right in maybe contrasting this to what I imagine to be like some stylized or stereotypical view of somebody like in the long-termist community, is that you're emphasizing the like tractability point a bunch more than the like pure importance, uh, what's like the highest actual risk uh, point. Yeah, absolutely. And where, again, just like to, to recap, does like that tractability come from? Is it just that like everybody broadly agrees that like AI systems should be safe? Um, or is it mostly a thing of like, oh, look, you know, this is like more of a, you know, engineering, computer science, technical like question that we can like actually make progress on as opposed to the like, you know, US-China geopolitics dominance yeah. that's like... So uh, it, much bigger. So it's a bit of both. Where I think the high level thing is, um, I think you can tell a story about how there might be, in some sense, multiple equilibria, um, and how there might be concrete actions that help determine which of those you land at. Um, and so it seems like there might be some stable positive equilibrium um, where um, it's a case that people can pretty reliably identify whether some system they might want to release will do catastrophically bad things, 
and then they don't do that, and they instead make it using the techniques that allow it to be be alright. And then people with resources pretty much just release stuff that's not going to be catastrophically bad, or even when they do release stuff that is really prone to misbehavior, um, there at that point, lots of other AI systems, which are very useful for defending against any harms caused by that one. Um, and then you can also tell a story about a, another equilibrium, where um, which you get to through uh, people deploying some frontier systems before they've been able to figure out whether they're safe or unsafe. People think probably they're safe or the, the risk of them being unsafe is sufficiently low. They release them, uh, they're wrong, and then these systems cause some sort of catastrophe that's hard to come back from. Um, either because the systems um, are power-seeking in the sense that they, they don't allow themselves to be shut down, um, or they've caused really, really important damage to critical infrastructure, um, or they've actually just killed everyone, yeah. <laughs> uh, would be an extreme version of it. Um, and then if these are the two possible equilibria, um, then you can tell a story about, okay, how my actions you know affect whether we go down one path or another. And there's some really you know, blunt or basic things that seem like they would make a difference. Like the, the bluntest and most basic is just um, how much effort goes into safety and auditing work, how many people are working on that, and then how much time do they have, and how much are these products rushed out. And then those seem probably contingent on a number of different factors. And so even though this is a pretty speculative story, I think the most likely thing is that either we're in a world where stuff is fine or in a world where stuff is just screwed up. You can at least tell these sorts of stories that that kind of makes some level of mechanistic sense about how there could be a level of contingency here. Uh, whereas when I think about questions like, you know, will it be the case that, you know, authoritarianism becomes more prevalent in the future than democracy, or people just like make, you know, poor decisions ethically about the design of future AI systems, um, or competitive pressures determine the design of AI systems in a way which is really different from what would be morally good. I don't really have that same mechanistic story in my head and when I try to tell a story, yeah. The, the mechanisms for dealing with it are a lot more, or even more speculative in my head than just, oh yeah, it would be, people can work more in safety and auditing and these things are rushed out less quickly, you know, that would make a difference. So I, I guess you're explaining then why we might choose to focus on risks, which although we might judge them to be relatively unlikely, we can tell unusually crisp stories about actually being able to do something about them. Um, You've made a kind of related point, which is that we should expect to end up focusing on worrying about um, the most speculative risks in the sense that we're just least sure about what the overall risk is. Yeah. Um, do you want to explain why? Right. Uh, yeah. So I'd say so. there's a mechanistic story you can tell about how we form our views about the level of, of risk um, posed by you know, some phenomenon in the world. And the idea is um, you start out with some um, level of, some form of prior of, of the level of risk you have before you've thought about any of the details. And then you encounter bits of argumentation or bits of evidence um, or information that someone else is worried about this. And then as you get those little bits of evidence um, of one form or another, your probability moves around up or down. And then if basically you have uh, more bits of evidence, then there's less stochasticity or, or randomness in terms of how your probability moves around. Yeah, so let's say we're trying to figure out, for example, is there a big risk from all of the bees dying and then this in some way causing yeah. havoc globally? Uh, you probably start out with a really low prior probability that this is a concern. Like if someone were to just ask you randomly, do you think that's a problem, like all of the bees dying? And then you've never heard this before, you're probably going to be like, I, I can't see why that would be an issue or why that would happen. Yeah. Mm. 
then you'll maybe encounter like a few bits of information where it's um uh you find out oh there's this one person i've heard of who's worried about this thing and that makes you a bit more worried than you were before there you know there exists a person um and then you know someone points out to you like oh bees are really important for for pollinating certain crops. And then you're like, wow, they are. I hadn't thought, of, I hadn't remembered that. I've forgotten that fact about bees. And then yeah. I'm a bit worried. And then someone tells you, do you know, bees are dying at this alarming rate. And now you're a bit more nervous. Um, and you get a few bits of information that make you more worried. And then there's some additional bits of information you get after that, if you keep thinking about it, that um, at some point make you not so worried, where someone tells you, oh, hey, it's a case that um, almost like the vast majority of food produced in the world just is not pollinated by bees. Even if all of the stuff was pollinated by, by bees stuff being produced, stuff would be fine. And then you find out these other facts about trends and, and bee yeah. deaths and yeah. things like that. And you become less worried. Um, and so if you get enough facts, enough information, you eventually become unworried again. But there's sort of this window where you might just be unfortunate and, and happening, to have, happening to have encountered certain bits of information or certain considerations that all just happen to lie on the side of you being, you know, more worried as opposed to, to less worried. Whereas mm -hmm. if you gather lots of facts and considerations, then um, overall, collectively, you're more likely to to not have them all be sort of lying on one side and sort of converge back. Yeah. And then there's a bit of a pattern here is so that, that's a maybe a bit of a weirdly abstract argument. Um, there's a bit of a pattern here as well of um of a number of cases in the past where people focused on existential catastrophic risks have become more and less worried about something as they've thought in more depth about it. Uh, so for example, I think it's the case that um, in the existential risk world, uh, people are now less worried about um, existentially damaging climate change than they were previously. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, people thought about it for a bit. Um, obviously, there's, there's very clear reasons to be worried about climate change. Then these additional considerations under people's minds of, oh, do you know that climate models often don't pay that much attention to terror risks or these very unlikely chances of there being these feedback loops that sort of feedback into themselves to make the temperature way, way higher. And just like climate models mostly don't look at this. And that's a consideration where when you hear it, you become much more worried than you were previously because now you think, oh, there's some chance it'll be even worse than the mainstream climate models predict. Um, and then my impression is people looked into this more and then sort of realized, oh, okay, actually it's quite unlikely to get these extremely bad feedback loops and went down again. You've had similar things for nuclear war as well. Where I think a lot of people started out kind of presuming historically that this would just permanently derail civilization. Yeah. Um, and then people thought about it more and realized, okay, this is very grim, but South America, probably relatively okay. Um, lots of parts of the world, probably relatively okay. Probably you can get through it. And also, you know, civilization has gone through major collapses before and recovered relatively quickly. And even things like agriculture have been redeveloped. And people went through additional considerations and then the um the risk estimate went down again um so there's also some empirical pattern as well of um for a number of risks as people have thought more about them often they go back down again yeah and maybe predictably so right this is not like paradoxical yeah like i guess as long as you don't start with such a skeptical prior that you just don't end up thinking that anything is a yeah. significant risk then you might just expect to get misled a bunch of times before you really hit on a on a true positive yeah like a bit like kind of winner's curse you know you just like might expect that the winning bid on this like plot of land of unknown value is going to be like overbidding on it but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't bid on it um i guess another related maybe different factor is that when you are especially unsure then the value of information is, yeah. is higher so this is a kind of like sweet spot where you know just enough to know that it's like potentially important but not enough to like rule it out or rule it in conclusively 
Yeah, exactly. So I think the winner's curse is, yeah, is a good analogy um, for it. And and so to be clear, this is actually not a story about people being biased or anything. It's a story where um, basically there's going to be some level of randomness in terms of, um, you know, how concerning the bits of information you encounter are. And just by, in a sense, mechanistically, almost by sheer chance, there'll be some risks that you end up overestimating just because you happen to have encountered a bunch of considerations which point in one direction, or those are the only considerations which are available to you. The others are sort of locked away or in some sense inaccessible. Um, um, and then um, a, a rational state mindset to be in for a lot of cases, as in, for example, the climate change case, is you can go, okay, I think that this probably is not, you know, an ex like, an ex you know, probably there's not some really high actual propensity here for an ex sure. this thing to cause an, ex as an existential catastrophe. But I've now encountered some arguments which raise this as a possibility in my mind and mean that I can't rule it out, whereas previously I wasn't really thinking about it at all. Like I've now encountered, in the case of climate change, this point that climate models don't really look at this tail risk of this like, you know, the 99th percentile, how bad it could get feedback loop thing. And now you've heard this, you can go, I don't know if we look into that more, whether or not it will turn out to be the case that this is unlikely. Um, but now I'm in the state of uncertainty where I think probably there's not a very high propensity to have these crazy feedback loops, but now it's a live possibility in my mind. And so I think it will probably happen if I can look into it more deeply is I'll be reassured. And then I probably will go back down, you know, close to the zero again. But there's also some chance, maybe there's a 10% chance that if I look into this more deeply and I really can actually analyze this phenomenon that's mysterious to me, I'll become more worried. And I'll realize that there's actually some high propensity here for feedback loops. Um, and so you can be completely rational in this state of affairs where you recognize that this is a thing that mechanistically is going on. And actually think, if I were to think more about this, I'll probably be reassured, uh, but nonetheless, um, be more worried than you were initially once you've encountered these, these additional considerations. And I guess then drawing out the explicit analogy here to AGI yeah. risk and stuff, like where do you think, I guess, like in this process, like we're currently at as a field? Um, so I, I'd say that we're, um, we're maybe you know at a point a little bit similar to um oh maybe climate models, you know don't cover this thing. We don't have a clear story of why this won't cause a catastrophe. There's maybe some you know high level arguments of how you could get a feedback loop that sort of stage before you know the models really looked at that yeah. deeply. Um, and if I understand your like range of like plausibility being yeah. like somewhere like single digit to low yeah. double digit, is that like the connection there then as well that you're kind of like you know yeah. aware that this is like potentially feasible, yeah. but you're kind of pricing in already that we like yeah. actually like don't know. So yeah, so the way I, I would basically, yeah. So where I'm at is I don't actually think the available arguments for um, AI systems having a very strong propensity to cause um, extensively significant catastrophes. I don't think these arguments are actually at the moment still extremely strong or extremely fleshed out. My feeling is probably it's the case that um, if people are able to like actually like let's say look back with the benefit of hindsight and much deeper thought on them, um, that probably they'll realize the arguments really just had a bunch of issues, were overconfident in different ways, and that you know the propensity for this level of risk is, is a lot higher than people in the community tend to think. But there's also some chance that that's just totally not the case. And actually, even though the arguments aren't totally fleshed out, even though there are these gaps, um, if you were to think more about them and actually fill in the gaps, it will actually really lead you quite firmly the conclusion that the propensity for catastrophes is extremely high. Um, and so I, I think that there are these arguments which have various issues, I think aren't that strong. I think probably more scrutiny would tend to lead people to become less worried about them. But there's also some chance that the opposite is true. Um, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there's maybe that 10% chance that the 
arguments are actually very strong. And just if you fill in the details, it becomes clear that it's like a correct, valid mathematical proof that happened to have some gaps in it. There's definitely like a difficulty here where uh, you're kind of claiming that, look, there are some of these arguments. I'm sure if we spend more time, we will realize yeah. that they're maybe actually weaker. But I'm still like curious to ask of like, well, at least in the past, like have there been some arguments that felt very you know, convincing or at least like plausible yeah. for AGI uh, X risk that now in hindsight appear much weaker uh, than people like initially thought they were? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. I think it's really the case and not everyone agrees with me on this. Um, but I, my overall view is um, if you look at uh, the works of the pieces of writing that really kickstarted the field of AI safety focused on existential risks from unsafe AI systems, uh, that the arguments there were actually just not, with hindsight, that strong, um, even though they appeared to be at the time, including to, to people like me. Um, so I think my overall view is that there are a lot of issues with, uh, for example, um, in hindsight, the book Superintelligence or writing by, by Eliezer Yudkowsky that, that you know, fed into that book. Yeah, can you walk us through like what the dialect here is, of like what the argument and then counter argument is? Yeah, so I I would break down the the classic arguments in books like Superintelligence into a few key steps. Um, so it's this first step of arguing that at some point in the future we're likely to rather suddenly end up with AI systems or perhaps a single AI system which has extremely extremely um, uh, broad and dominant and unprecedented capabilities, which is yeah. is much more advanced than any AI system that's existed before, and and can do, um, you know, a huge range of things that would have, basically, give it power over the world if if it wished. Um, yeah. The, then the second bit of the argument, um, is sort of responsive. Um, you know, ask the question, uh, okay, well, how might you expect this AI system to behave if there will be some radical leap in progress in the future that creates this this very powerful AI system? Um, you know, should we expect that to behave in a benign way, um, which is compatible with human interests? And um, the next part of the argument responds to an objection some people have that says, uh, oh, you know, if it's sufficiently intelligent or capable, then uh, surely it will behave in a benign way. Um, the books like Superintelligence respond with, with this claim, um, sometimes called the orthogonality thesis. And this is just a claim that it's at least in principle possible to make an AI system which is very capable, but tries to do things that no person would want it to do. Yeah. That, uh, for example, if you want to make an AI system that um, is purely focused on um, keeping an accurate record of the number of grains of sand in North America, uh, you can make an AI system in principle that does that very effectively. Um, and so, you know, the book argues, okay, it's at least in principle possible to make an AI system that would behave in ways that no person would really want it to do. Um, so you can't assume that some advanced AI system in the future will actually behave in benign ways. Then the third bit of the argument is this sort of uh, statistical claim, um, sometimes called the um, instrumental convergence hypothesis. And one way to formulate this is by saying that um, for the majority of goals an AI system might have, um, the way to effectively pursue that goal um, involves engaging in behaviors which would be very harmful for people. Uh, one simple illustration of this is that um, for a really wide range of goals, it's clearly useful to try and prevent yourself from being shut down. So if your goal is to count the number of grains of sand in North America, hard to do that if you're shut down. If your goal is to help the Yankees win the next World Series, hard to do that if you're shut down, et cetera. And then um, if you uh, are incentivized to not allow yourself to be shut down, then perhaps it also follows that you're incentivized to, let's say, um, constrain people or um, imprison people or harm people to make it even harder for them to shut you down right. if they wanted to do that. 
Um, and so Slavs the argument says, okay, in some sense, the vast majority of possible AI systems of a certain kind would have a tendency to take harmful actions towards people. Um, and so putting this all together, uh, there may be some AI system in the future that has really radical and unprecedented powers of the world. Mm. Um, we can't assume that this AI system will behave in benign ways, because at least it's physically possible for it to behave in ways which are harmful. And also, furthermore, we should think that the AI system will probably or has a, has a high likelihood of behaving in harmful ways uh, because of the statistical claim that the, in some sense, the majority of ways it could behave or might be incentivized to behave involve harmful behaviors. And, and that all is meant to, to, to imply, okay, high likelihood at some point in the future, some AI system does really bad things to people. Right, right. And so laying out this case, and as I understand, at least these like three critical arguments or steps you need to take, at least to get this formulation of AGI risk, like what do you see is, as being like wrong with that or having been wrong with that? Yeah, so um, in terms of these three bits, I, I can walk through them each in turn. Uh, the first bit, this argument for there being a really radical jump in capabilities, um, I think just basically um, it's a really, really radical hypothesis that one should be somewhat skeptical of on priors to start, just in terms of this unprecedented level of discontinuity in terms of... Just because we haven't seen that in the past with, it's kind with of other technologies. Right? Like some people like to point to evolution as a way to say prior. There's this kind of continuous improvement in like brain size yeah. or whatever, but there's big discontinuous jump between like chimp-like things and human-like things. Right. I think that it really depends level of discontinuity. So there's certainly precedent for progress getting faster in different domains. Yeah. I think there's not really precedent for the, the level... Self-improvement. Oh, not even, not even that. I mean, so I think if you look back at superintelligence or Yudkowsky's writing, it's really like, um, you know, over the course of a day, basically, or, you know, I, you pull up, there's graphs and stuff where sure. you try and pull up the implied numbers, but it's basically like, okay, imagine that GDP were to, you know, a thousand X over the course of a day after like previously nothing interesting yeah. was happening economically. It's like that, you know, like right. that. Um, I don't know, maybe those numbers are a bit exaggerated, but I think they're actually not that. It, it is roughly that sort of thing um, if you, you know, look at the at least like classic versions of this. Yeah. Um, there's a question of how much discontinuity you need for the risk to, to be right. severe. Um, but I do think in general, one should have a skeptical prior against the level of, of extremeness of um, the arguments. I do think there's, so that, that's like just one starting bit. But I do think a really key thing is, is sort of regardless of whether or not actually the conclusion is right. I think the, the stronger thing for me is I think the arguments are just in hindsight really not sufficient to establish it. And I think there's a lot more I could say on this, but I think one kind of crisp way to, to make this point is that the arguments place a lot of um, emphasis on um, recursive self-improvement through an AI system writing its own code, where the narrative is basically an AI system will be behaving in a certain way because it has code that determines its behavior. Then it will get good at coding and it will rewrite its code to make it even better at coding and other things. And it will be even better at coding, so it will rewrite its code again. And then these improvements to its code will instantly allow it to become even better at rewriting its code. And then it will shoot up and be able to do this huge range of things. And it's just the case that um, the book was written before machine learning became the dominant paradigm in, in the world of AI. And machine learning just doesn't work that way. Um, the code has, in some sense, a bit of secondary importance like if you were to leak the code associated with training an AI system people actually like a frontier AI system people wouldn't actually care that much about it the code is sort of in some sense outlines a process that allows really large amounts of compute over a long period of time to improve to be 
Right, and like getting data as actual input. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so it's not this thing where you just, that's just not really the way that AI systems actually get better, is this, is you tweak the code and then in, as, as a programmer, and then instantly it's better at a thing. Um, it's mostly this process of basically taking a big pile of compute and a big pile of data and then um, kind of like doing this iterative process where the thing becomes more capable yeah. over time. And improvements in the code that's relevant to the training process do do make a difference, but it's not this thing where you just it's it's code that's determining the system's behavior, and then you you know yeah. if you change the code, it's, it's instantly different. And so that's just one simple way of sort of pointing out like there's clearly at least an issue with the, these arguments, even if the conclusion is right. Right. The, the arguments have this flaw that they're not actually talking about what actual AI development processes look like, and so um, if the argument's right, it's it's because of some mixture of of luck or transfer to a relatively different type of training process that was never really covered by the arguments. Um, there's, there's more that can be said in this, but overall, I think that um, they just don't give us, in hindsight, very strong reasons to expect a level of discontinuity um, or... Um, yeah, so I, I could imagine like then substituting maybe out the like first part of yeah. the argument, which implies you need a strong discontinuity with some kind of other argument that's like maybe yeah. more rooted in ML techniques, but still gets me to like, look, AI capabilities can be like really powerful, yeah. and the second and third argument like might still hold. So how how might you yeah like proceed then with your with your counter argument? Yeah, I mean, so I, I maybe just want to to mostly focus for the moment on yeah. So I think there's there's sort of maybe two questions here. One one question is um, like basically did the classic arguments work or were they very strong? Do they have gaps? And then there's a second bit of um, once those gaps or issues are noticed, is there a way to modify the arguments and and strengthen them? And you know, or actually, even was that bit of the argument necessary? Like it was assumed to be maybe necessary implicitly because it was, yeah, it was yeah. in there, but maybe they could have just dropped it and it would have, you know made no difference. Um, yeah, maybe just for now, just like going through like step by step, like what what are your other like concerns with like step two and step three? Yeah, so so step two, I, I don't really have in principle major objections to it. So this idea, the orthogonality thesis, um, I basically. I guess I have various quibbles, but basically accept the claim that, like, yeah, in principle, you could make an AI system which have a, which would have a propensity to try and do very bad things to people. That that's just like physically possible. Um, I definitely accept that as a thing that's that's true. I think I, I have quibbles I can give, but I'll, I'll maybe just say step two. I think basically correct on the on the key points. Um, and then step three, um, which is this idea of instrumental convergence. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with the claim itself, um, but the issue is I think there's a big gap in jumping from a statistical claim that the majority of, in some sense, the majority of AI systems of a certain kind would have a propensity to behave badly, um, to the conclusion uh, that we will, in fact, like, tend to or disproportionately make AI systems which will behave badly. And then um, there's a few different ways to, I think it's, it's easiest to illustrate this basically with a few examples of the kind of reasoning uh, going wrong. Um, by analogy to other technologies, uh, there's this example I sometimes use of airplanes where the majority of possible airplane designs involve some of the windows being open on the plane, but we were never very likely to design, you know, airliners in, in that way. Right, because um, we're not designing them by random. Uh, yeah, basically there's some, you know, it's in some sense the design is being chosen, there's some sort of selection, selective process. Um, but um, there's some sort of story here of like why we've avoided this. Um, as another analogy, uh, humans, which, you know, our brains were in some sense developed by some sort of selective process, which is maybe not that this analogous to machine learning training processes. Um, 
uh, you can make you know a similar argument to the the instrumental convergence argument about, for example, uh, the the arrangement of of Mather in a given room, where um you know the majority of of preference rankings I might have or utility functions I might have in a sense over how the Mather in, in this room is arranged involve me um, imply I ought to tear apart all the objects in the room because there's way more ways to arrange the Mather here if you split them into tiny pieces. You know, if you take a sheet of paper and you rip it into a hundred different um, shreds, uh, then there's so many different ways you can arrange those shreds in different orders, whereas there's only one if you keep the paper intact. And so some sort of, you know, abstract argument there of, um, oh, the majority of possible utility functions I could have over this room imply I ought to do this destructive behavior. Uh, but I don't just because that was never selected for. And probably in evolutionary history, people who did that sort of thing were negatively selected against because people wouldn't, I guess, invite them into their homes, I, I assume. Right. Yeah. Um, or even just as a toy example for uh, machine learning systems themselves, you might imagine uh, training a toy train uh, through some sort of uh, reinforcement learning or, or feedback process. Yeah. And what you want to do is you want to go down um, some track and then stop just before some fork in the track. And so, you know, you do the train process, you have the train do some stuff, you give it negative feedback whenever it stops before or, or past that point. Uh, probably you can pretty easily train this toy train to just stop at the desired point. Uh, there is this abstract instrumental convergence argument, though, that the um, uh, majority of, in some sense, preferences that, you know, the train might have over where it stops or what trajectory it follows on the track involve it not stopping at that point because there's this fork in the track and it can go to all these different, you know, endpoints. Mm -hmm. You know, the majority of, of preferences the train might have about the journey it will take involve it, you know, passing through this fork. Um, nonetheless, that doesn't actually make it any harder to just train it to just go forward and stop. And you can even imagine adding a bunch of other forks to the end of the track. So now there's a million forks at the end of the track and the tracks go all over the world and some of them end in Antarctica or space. Yeah. Moon. Now it's so crazily instrumentally convergent for the train to not stop at that point. But I think this actually has no causal influence whatsoever on the, the difficulty right. of training the train to just stop there. Like there's no actual causal relationship in that case between instrumental convergence and difficulty of making it act in a way that you want it to. If I can like maybe say that back uh, to you and like try and make it a bit more concrete or like analogous to the AGI case, yeah. I can kind of hear like the you know first argument being, look, out of all the ways we could possibly design AGI, the vast majority of cases will end up with an AGI that's like not aligned to human values. And then you're making a counter argument of like, but you know, we're not just like picking an AGI design at like random or yeah. this is not like happening in a vacuum. There are maybe some self-selective pressures in which it actually ends up being aligned. Then you could imagine a counter argument, which maybe links more to the like first argument you mentioned about discontinuity of like, well, maybe at the beginning, you know, before the self-selection process is able to like refine or something, we just get a really discontinuous jump such that the first or like first couple of designs we choose will be the one that like self-recursively improves. But then if you also weaken that argument, then the argument or the counter argument that self-selective pressure kind of like works or like refines um, becomes like much stronger. Yeah, I definitely think there's a relationship there between how discontinuous AI progress is and how large the risk is of, of self-growing your eye. Just like the more protracted selective the selection processes, the more you might expect people to notice issues with the yeah. way in which they're giving feedback and things like that. I would say that high level though, um, yeah, just to sort of pull the different bits apart. I think the issue with um, the, you know, the classic, you know, arguments basically is, you know, there's this big gap between the statistical claim about por what portion of AI systems in some abstract sense behave a certain way and the likelihood of us making AI systems that behave a certain way. Yeah. And I think it was probably just like underappreciated that this is actually a really large gap 
that needs to be crossed. And I definitely don't hold the view that it's, um, you know, uncrossable. And there are, or for sure, uncrossable. And I think there are a lot of arguments people have tried to fill in um, over the past, you know, several years to try and yeah, yeah. make it clearer how this gap can be crossed. So a lot of the point I want to make, I guess, at this particular moment is just this more narrow claim that um, this was this big thing that really, really needed to be filled in that yeah. um, just, I think, was not satisfactorily filled in, in in the sorts of writing you can find from several years ago. So I guess stepping back, I might try to say back what I took from all that. And what I'm not taking from that is um, here are some specific arguments which combine together to give you this like prediction of AI doom. And I think they're bunk. It seems to be more like, uh, you know, in general, it seems reasonable to be like pretty skeptical of arguments which predict like entirely unprecedented, crazy things. Um, and I should expect to be able to kind of find counter arguments. And in practice, I kind of can describe these like counter arguments to things like this strong version of instrumental convergence. But you might keep going. And as long as we're still in the land of like fairly high level abstract theorizing about how to expect AI to play out. I might also be skeptical of the counter arguments you can come up with to these like, you know, positive arguments for things going wrong. And so again, in practice, like the things you said about like airplane windows and trains or whatever, like, I don't know, it seems a bit hand wavy to me. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But just in general, it's just like hard to theorize about how things play out, whether like lots of messy, complicated dynamics, and we should have a skeptical prior about the track record of theorizing about these things. Um, and so you just don't really, shouldn't update very far in any direction, like based on these arguments without observing lots of things or like having a long, like back and forth argument, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's maybe roughly right. Like, I, I think a lot comes down in this unsatisfying way to um, this to some extent, this question of priors of, of if you're sort of starting from a perspective of, oh, I really need to be talked into thinking that this this probability of, of of doom is high versus if you're starting from, you know, if you're starting from like a 50-50 perspective, then maybe what you, you know, which I don't think anyone is as a starting point, but if you're starting there, then the situation sort of like, okay, well, there are these arguments um, for, you know, probably of doom being high. In hindsight, the arguments, there's some critical bits that like, the way they were supported just don't work. Maybe they could be filled in with bits that do work. Um, there's some ways in which the arguments prove too much of they have these implications in our domains that seem wrong. And so at least you'd make, you need to add in some additional assumptions or add in some nuance of like, okay, well, why exactly does it apply this in the AI case, but on this other case, and then kind of like really flush that out. Um, you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, I, I don't know, maybe that, that balances out basically of um, there's some intuitively interesting high-level arguments, their arguments, clearly have some things that at least need to be filled in and replaced. And then maybe I haven't moved that much from my starting point. Um, maybe that kind of balances out a bit. Um, if your starting point was 50-50, then that's very different than if your starting point was 0.1%. Uh, um, I do think in general, um, if your starting point was sufficiently low, just the existence of at least these high-level kind of compelling or interesting right, arguments right, right, right. should be updating you upwards. For most risks, they just even getting to that point, there's no arguments that even like have that level of compellingness to them. It's like the honeybee collapse, killing, yeah. killing everyone thing. Um, there's nothing that's that's that strong. It's not like oh, okay, just the you know, there's these these little bits of the honeybee argument right, that prove right, too right. much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how exactly can we? Um, so already you're in a territory which is is very different right. than most risks you might sure. be, be encountering. 
so so far we've been like interested in these like more classic like x risk arguments but yeah. i could also imagine like somebody listening is just like okay you know we had this like set of arguments now there's this set of counter arguments but now we have these like counter counter arguments as in like my you know theory now for agi x risk which is more rooted in ml progress or whatever is actually just like really convincing um what would you know maybe some inclinations or like some pointers be why even now we haven't like completely come up with you know an airtight case for uh agi express yeah i i think as well that there will be some variation here so i think you know airtight argument for a thing that's not like a mathematical proof is, yeah. is a really really high standard to aim for um and then clearly many people do believe that the arguments are now extremely strong because many people actually assign very high credences yeah. to, to doom um so in, in some sense, I, at least implicitly, am disagreeing with a significant portion of people in, in the space by saying that I think the arguments are still not, um, I think they've been more fleshed out, certainly, than they were, um, you know, in 2016 or something. Like, yeah. clear, I think progress has happened. Um, but I am, yeah, implicitly disagreeing with... Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm curious yeah. as to, like, yeah, like, why do you, uh, like, disagree? Or, like, what are some, uh, you know, rebuttals or, or questions that you wish people with very high, you know, P dooms, like engage with more? Yeah, I mean, so I think, um, so I'd say a, a really key bit, which I think is, is actually just very consequential um, for how people think about, um, about these risks is, um, okay, so, so basically, um, the way a lot of these systems, are, you know, existing systems are being at least partly trained now and probably will be trained increasingly so in the future is using human feedback. So at the moment, um, there is um, this type of training process of uh, reinforcement learning with like human feedback, uh, where the way it works is you take some, let's say, large language model, that's a chatbot type system. And then um, you refine this behavior by basically asking people um, like how good or bad their responses were along dimensions which are of interest, which might be, is it helpful, is it racist, does it tell the truth, et cetera. Um, and then in response to this feedback, the AI system, um, its its behavior evolves over time um, and ideally in the direction of, of what people you know, want from it. And um, so I think there's a, this high level question of um, imagine that we're training these systems to do increasingly sophisticated things in the future, um, which are increasingly um, sort of interesting or, or high stakes. And let's say that we're consistently penalizing the systems whenever they do anything, which is um, violent or let's say violence adjacent or seems like an attempt at deception or things like that. Um, there's two views you could potentially hold about this. One is that we're probably just going to end up with systems that by default just don't really do really violent things just because we've consistently negatively penalized anything in that direction. Um, the other view you could hold is that what we'll do is we'll make AI systems which um, consistently avoid violence whenever there's someone who can stop them or whenever there's someone who can shut them off or something after like a after you know a violent action or a failed attempt at violence and at some point in the future there'll be an ai system which was trained using these methods receive this sort of feedback and then uh that will be an opportunity to cause tremendous harm through violent actions and also be in a position to like not have anyone stop it or in some sense punish it and then it will you know wait i think there's sometimes it'll... called like the treacherous turn yeah exactly and it will sort of wait and in some sense it will it will kind of um, pounce. And um, I think something like this latter story or concern um, is something a lot of people have in mind when they worry about AI systems causing catastrophes is that 
the thing that will happen if you give these systems negative feedback for doing things like taking violent actions um, yeah. or self-preserving actions, like avoiding themselves being shut down, um, 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 maybe most likely of all, um, is that you'll actually make systems that in the long run are um, what might be called deceptively aligned, where they um, behave the way that people would want them to behave just in circumstances where it's relatively low stakes and they actually can't cause that much harm through misbehavior. But then when they're in, in situations we can cause a very large amount of harm and prevent anyone from stopping them, then they misbehave. And I think that there's a, um, yeah, important variable is um, which of these two things is more likely. There's this sort of um, uh, blunt thing that probably the thing that will happen by default is people make systems that just behave okay. And then the, the worrisome one is people make systems that behave catastrophically and pounce like just when the time is right. Right, and become like increasingly deceptive or something. As yeah, increasingly scaling up deception yeah. and things like that. Um, and I think the the case for um, so to be clear here in terms of I would absolutely not recommend that that anyone plow ahead assuming that just by default you know human feedback will make systems that at least don't do extremely horrible things. I also think, I think there's like an underrated case though that if you just keep selecting systems for not behaving violently, then they just won't. Yeah, here's here's one reason you might expect this. Right? Yeah. If you're just like going ahead with this, you know, naive reinforcement learning from human feedback thing, um, then even if you end up training some agent which is accidentally like deceptively aligned, yeah, in the sense that it kind of uh, understands in some sense that it could uh, it could turn right. Um, well, there's this kind of discontinuity where if I'm an like AI agent and I can only take over half the world. The rest of the world is going to be like really unhappy with the fact that I tried to like kill half the world and probably like give me some fairly bad reviews for that that attempt. Um, and so it just isn't worth it. And so doing anything like a turn is only worth it when I have the capability to do something that maybe just requires like a wild amount of power, let's say, yeah. and in an environment that might be might involve other similarly powerful agents. Maybe yeah. that just kind of is unlikely to happen. Yeah, I mean, so I think that there there's two bits here. So one bit is um, is it the will the AI systems be be such that in the right circumstance where they actually had an opportunity to, let's say, take over the world or, or some such, um, they would do it if the opportunity existed. And there's a second question of, okay, well, will such opportunities exist or like, you know, um, and you might just say, okay, so there's definitely some line of argument there of just saying, well, okay, it, it's really, really hard to, to, for instance, take over the world, especially if people can rely on other AI systems to at least be somewhat helpful for having that not happen if you know maybe gpt8 is really screwed up and has an inclination to take over the world but maybe gpt7 is a chatbot you can ask it hey what's some good advice about how to handle the situation and it actually just does it and it's yeah. you know yeah um yeah i mean so that's one difference as well and you, you could tell some story where you know there's this window where you have in some sense susceptibly misaligned systems but it's kind of okay because they actually just can't really do anything extremely yeah. horrible and then at some point you actually work out how to make them not deceptively aligned and then you kind of you know squeak through or, or whatever um or they sometimes try to, to to pull that kind of thing and it's damaging but it's not you know the world is over level damaging that's definitely a broad category of ways in which stuff might be okay and i think as well there is actually i do also think that 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 class of scenarios is a little bit underappreciated of um it being the case that you have some window where you have kind of deceptively misaligned things but it's actually just quite hard to, to do something like take over the world especially if um you have other AI systems which can be useful and people like are on guard to shut down data centers and, and whatnot. Um, there's also, though, I think still a 
a lack of, of appreciation um, for just the possibility that just it's actually maybe not that hard to avoid accidentally creating a really yeah. deceptively misaligned system. I don't have really confident views here, but I think it's sometimes just weird to me that this is seems to be dismissed just relatively quickly. Yeah, I guess like one abstract reason for thinking this is that it's much in some sense simpler to describe an agent which scores well just because it's honest versus an agent which scores well because it has these like various deceptive qualities where it's kind of the views that it in fact holds are different to the views that it tells different people. This is true for humans, right? It's like much yeah. easier and involves less kind of cognitive overhead just to like be generally honest than to like be this kind of Machiavellian mastermind and therefore most people are just like most of the time honest. Yeah, so I'll, I'll maybe, yeah, I'll talk, maybe like um, something which is is relatively compelling to me or at least, um, or, or definitely informs my views on this is, um, yeah, exa exactly, uh, the analogy to, to human evolution. And I think, um, I think a lot of people uh, use human evolutionary history as an argument for expecting deceptive misalignment, which I think I actually have um, almost the opposite interpretation of it, which is, is definitely some divergence I have from other people in the space. Um, so something that, you know, happened in uh, uh, human evolutionary history is um, it's like pretty bad to, um, yeah, it's like, it's pretty bad, for example, to um, like set your entire immediate family and yourself on fire. Um, like most people don't want to do that. Um, and then, um, or, you know, in evolutionary history, most people who did that were presumably penalized, their genes weren't passed on, and then people's genes and gene space moved a bit away from that. Um, today, people just intrinsically don't want to do that. Um, it's not like some instrumental thing of people going, well, you know, like, it, it, you know, it doesn't further my goals to propagate my genes into the future to not set myself in my entire immediate family on fire. Um, so therefore, through instrumental reasoning, I will decide not to take this action. It's just like people just don't want to to do it. They just intrinsically don't want to do it. If they're planning and looking ahead at different ways that things they might do in the world. And one of the, the scenarios involves them doing that, then that's like strongly counts against it just intrinsically. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what you want basically is um, what you want in the case of training ML systems through human feedback is you want to basically ding them whenever they do something that's a, an unwanted behavior. And then you want the AI systems to in some sense just not want to do it. Um, and it seems like human evolution history has lots of examples of people getting dinged for certain kinds of behavior in evolutionary history and then just having a strong aversion. Um, I think the um, the most salient or important case of this is humans aversion to violence or hurting other people. So this is not something that was consistently selected against. Um, so loads of people killed other people and then this was actually useful for them evolutionarily, because they took their resources or, you know, sort of dominance and things like that. Um, um, my sense is that it's at least, you know, on average, your pre-agricultural ancestors, you know, I think certainly killed at least a, a tenth of a person, you know, um, per, per life, um, maybe more than that. Um, so it was just based on, you know, rates of violent deaths. And so this wasn't something that was consistently penalized. Um, and in some cases, it was actively rewarded. Um, nonetheless, most times when you might kill another person or be violent against another person, it was penalized. Like if you just were to randomly attack, you know, someone in, in, in your area, it's probably you're going to be ostracized, you're going to be hurt yourself or something like that. Um, and then as a result, people have a pretty strong, although 
clearly not consistent aversion to hurting other people. Um, most people, it actually takes quite a bit to get them to kill someone else. Um, this is often something that even in military context, people need to work to overcome. Um, and then it's not just a purely instrumental thing. It's that people intrinsically have an aversion to doing it. Uh, there's some sort of interesting uh, transfer, you know, failure, like limitations to transfer here. So probably forms of killing, which are closer to forms of killing that would have been penalized in the past, people are more averse to. So for example, killing with your bare hands, which is probably more similar to the form of killing that in evolutionary history, you know, we've gone penalized. Um, people have a stronger aversion to than, for example, killing with drone strikes, which is something that that never happened in evolutionary history. Um, nonetheless, there has been some level of transfer there where people do have an intrinsic aversion, even to killing with drone strikes. Drone operators do get PTSD. Uh, clearly, you can get people to do it and that this job exists. So it's not, you know, yeah. but there's been some transfer there. Uh, we even have transfer to killing animals, which is kind of interesting because this is something that never would have yeah. been penalized, basically, um, or like would have been penalized very little. Um, but killing animals, which are the type of animal that we eat, we have some aversion to, which is sort of interesting. Um, selling it for some analogies people make, we have an aversion to killing chimpanzees. Like you definitely, if I were to ask you to kill a chimpanzee and it was going to pay you $10 and no one would need to know, no downsides for you. That'd be an insane podcast. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> you need to kill a chimpanzee with your bare hands. <laughs> I, I've brought the chimpanzee with me today. Right. <laughs> um, you're going to be intrinsically averse to that. That's something yeah. that in, intrinsically, even if it's actually furthers various other goals you have, it's going to be hard to make yourself do that. And I was never specifically selected for it. It's actually probably almost like a little bit disadvantageous, but it seems like this intrinsic aversion to violence has been built up relatively strongly, even though it wasn't even consistently penalized. Um, and wasn't even penalized in many of the forms of killing that people can participate in today. And so by analogy with AI systems, that's kind of reassuring. Um, the thing you want to have happen is AI systems do something which is something that's a bit violent towards people and then penalize it, don't have you know, the parameters that contribute to that you know, change, um, and then you know, have this sort of iterative process of, of selection. And at the end of it, you want AI systems to just you know, in the same way that you are um, not willing to kill that chimpanzee I brought with me today. <laughs> uh, you want the AI system to just be really averse to acting violently towards um, people. And then, you know, there are, there are, and you might imagine, you know, as a baseline, maybe it would be even more averse than people are because in humans, it wasn't consistently selected against. Um, and also there's loads of forms of violence that just never appeared in the evolutionary track record. And so I think as, as a baseline perspective, and this is not to say that this, this argument is, is airtight, um, but we do notice that people have an aversion to hurting other people. That's not perfect, but it is there. That sometimes is a block against them doing that, even when it's instrumentally useful. You might, as a baseline, expect AI systems, at least around a certain maybe cognitive level or something, uh, to have a similar aversion to the ones that people have, or perhaps an even stronger one, because it would have been selected for um, even more consistently, and perhaps with an either even like broader range of forms of it in the in the sample. Um, and perhaps you would also expect things which are like killing adjacent, like lower level forms of violence, like punching people or the, the language model equivalent is, uh, to have also been selected against in a way that they just clearly weren't yeah. for, for, um, for people. Um, anyway, so that's a long-winded way of, of saying, I do think if you look at the evolutionary track record, the way this stuff works seems to have often imbued people with an intrinsic desire not to do things that are selected against. And then um, specifically things which are selling to us, like violence. And if that's the case, then you might expect something similar for AI systems, perhaps something even stronger for AI systems. 
And then that would be uh, reassuring, even if it's not perfectly reassuring, because obviously people do still kill and there are yeah. still sociopaths who don't, you know, have these these um these barriers in place. But it would at least be somewhat reassuring. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I guess I could try saying that back. So in the evolutionary environment, if you began with a gene pool of pure honesty, then you might naively think that as soon as you get like a little seed of deception, then it spreads because I can just capitalize on everyone's like trust in me to lie about how much, how many resources they should give me. You know, like you have a pool of doves. As soon as you get a hawk, the hawks begin to take over um, until nearly everything is hawk. Um, but this kind of doesn't happen. Like we just settled on uh, something like an equilibrium where just most people are mostly honest. And maybe this is because before you get successful kinds of deception, you get relatively easy to spot bad kinds of deception, which you can select against by like making pariahs out of sociopaths or just kind of, you know, ignoring them. Um, and maybe by analogy in the kind of reinforcement learning from human feedback uh, story, maybe you should expect to get relatively easy to spot kinds of deception before you get the like really tricky hidden kinds. And therefore we just like, it's fine. Yeah, I think maybe I want to make it, my points like somewhat more narrow than that and somewhat less focused on deception. So I think maybe the way to put it is like there's certain things that an AI system might do that are the actual scary things that would actually cause a lot of harm. Um, and so two of these, let's say, are um, killing and not allowing yourself to be, let's say, shut off or stopped. And then, yeah, there's a, there's maybe a small number of like high level things we really want to make sure AI systems don't do. And if they don't do it, then we're probably not in at least like really acute catastrophe land. Um, and there's a question of whether selecting against these behaviors leads the AI systems to um, um, intrinsically disprefer courses of action that involve those behaviors, um, or merely to have a very contingent preference against them. Uh, basically saying, I. I really don't want to kill people specifically in the circumstances where someone could punish me afterwards. Right. Yeah. Um, or I really don't want to kill people specifically in the circumstances where, you know, I don't get to conquer, you know, the world through through doing it or whatever. Um, and then um and then deception is yeah, maybe um yeah, maybe there's two bits there. So one is it's it's a question of how this thing transfers, of like, do you actually have yeah, do you actually have a sort of general preference against this thing, sure. or this specific kind of it's specific kind of instrumental one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the other bit um, is maybe the deception thing is like, are, are you upfront about this? Because the deception bit is maybe some additional layer on top right, of this. Because okay. if you're just honest about it, if you're like, hey, I noticed you're not killing anyone, is that because you don't want to kill people, or is it because you're just <laughs> waiting? And the AI yeah. system is like, oh, I'm just waiting. Then yeah. that solves probably a lot of the issue. So yeah. The deception in terms of the active lying or dishonesty yeah. is um it's sort of a layer on top of it. Right. That, Got, it. Um, Got it. Yeah. So maybe taking a step back, we've yeah. talked a bunch about some like classic X risk arguments, and maybe here now touched upon like some like still you know motivating X risk arguments for why people put very high credences uh, to these kinds of like catastrophes happening. I'm wondering like on the flip side, what you know leaves Ben to think that yeah. there is still is a single digit, double digit chance. Like yeah. one, one, you know, broad like takeaway I take here is just like, you're saying, look, we're really uncertain about a lot of things here. There's like still a lot of like intellectual work, you know, left yeah. to be done. I've come up with like some arguments as uh, some counter arguments or other people have come up with some yeah. counter arguments, but maybe those counter arguments are also wrong or, you know, they still should update us 
like overall, like still to think that there's some non-negligible chance and the stakes are yeah. high enough that that's like still enough to be working on this stuff. Um, I'm also curious if there just are like some arguments at the moment that just like feel really salient to you that either you wish some people like take more, you know, seriously and like work to see if there yeah. are some counter arguments because, you know, this is where you see the action at. Um, yeah. Or like more broadly, like um, I'm just curious for what your motivations here are. Yeah. So, so maybe even just to stand the previous thread, I think um, evolutionary history is m more reassuring than people who are really freaked out about AI think it is. Mm -hmm. I think it's maybe less reassuring than people who are extremely calm. Yeah. Think it is. Um, so just to even stick on the um, the you know the killing bit there. Um, yeah, people do still kill other people. Yeah. Um, there are some people who seem to not even really have this aversion to killing, like at all. Like there are people who are just actual sociopaths who don't have this thing that you would have expected to have been. Yeah. You know, really frequently dinged. Um, and then there are also these, these sort of weird preferences that people have that it's like, where did these come from? Why would you have ever ex have expected this to have emerged in people? Um, and so, um, um, I mean, one that I, um, I find somewhat I ironic is in terms of the EA and long-termist communities, there are people who actually genuinely care about, um, let's say, things like the welfare of digital minds in other galaxies billions of years in the future. And this is at least seemingly a little bit action guiding for them. Yeah. Um, and that's strange. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's not something that you would have expected to have popped out as a preference or a concern from, right. from evolutionary history and the sort of right. things people were rewarded or, or pinged for. Um, uh, so that, that's a bit hindering. Basically these two things together of like clearly it's the case that some preferences or desires or, or goals or preoccupations that people have today are not things you would have ever expected them to have on the basis of what the training or evolutionary feedback process looked like. And the other bit is, is clearly some people who have, um, so clearly these aversions to things like killing or, or, or whatnot, like are not perfect. There, there's some stories we can have for that in evolutionary history of like, oh, it was actually frequently rewarded, even for sometimes penalized. But even so, there's clearly some amount of variation here. There are sociopaths and you know psychopaths, and I forget yeah. which is which. Um, um, and people who just um, just don't really have these prohibitions or even things like setting yourself on fire is one I think I brought up early as a thing that most people yeah. do. Obviously, there are people who have done this as political protest. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that um, there is this randomness and this sort of mysteriousness in terms of the desires and goals that people actually end up with going through evolutionary history is, I think, reason for concern about um, AI systems, where I think if you imagine the strain process going ahead where these systems keep becoming more and more sophisticated. They keep being able to come up with better and better and more and brilliant and ideas about how to do things in the world. And then they're given, you know, some of autonomy in the world and you, you have this feedback loop process where they're doing actions of the course of, of you know, days or weeks yeah. or years and they're getting feedback and, and they're things, they're evolving. Um, it seems like the evolutionary case would be some reason to suggest, okay, these things are going to end up kind of weird. Like they're going to end up yeah. maybe wanting some things in some behaviorally relevant sense that you wouldn't have expected them to want or care about. Mm -hmm. There's also going to be some noise as well in terms of some things that you might expect them to really disvalue on the basis of having consistently received negative feedback. Maybe that's not so guaranteed. Maybe just even if you have lots of them and there's some sort of random variation across them, some of them are going to have weaker prohibitions against certain actions and stronger drives to do certain weird things. And so these sort of funny stories about 
Oh, and the AI system will, you know, prevent itself from being shut off in order to make sure that, um, you know, it can have an accurate tally of the number of grains of sand in North America. Maybe something in that category is not completely insane, that they could actually end up with preferences which are just unusual in that way that we wouldn't have expected and relatively weaker prohibitions than you might have hoped and just do actual things in the world which are quite negative um, that you just wouldn't have anticipated. And then if you have this concern, it's really hard to say tightly why one shouldn't worry about this. We really don't understand very well how these models actually work. It's like, like we know at a high level of, oh, you have this type of architecture and you train them in such and such a way. Um, in terms of actually telling a really kind of satisfying mechanistic story about how these large language models that exist actually make decisions or actually give their outputs. Um, and like, why, you know, why does it do this thing versus this thing? Um, we can't really do this very satisfyingly. It's not that, you know, it's completely mysterious black magic to us, but it really, we just don't understand these things yeah. very well at all. And often we're just very surprised by the ways that they behave. And we can't really tell some complaining story of like why I did that versus, versus not that. Um, yeah, and so basically, um, given that, you know, the evolutionary case also has these, these, these concerning aspects of it, and given that this stuff is, if not black magic, sort of black magic adjacent, if we yeah, don't really yeah. understand how it's doing it, and also given that our level of oversight of these systems may become just like lower over time as we start to do things which are more sophisticated than we ourselves can do, and they're given more autonomy and less oversight, and they're maybe given important, serious responsibilities in the world, um, you know, what's the odds that something goes wrong here? Um, seems not right to be really calm about that. Yeah. There's a question of, does that mean existential catastrophe for humanity? Or can you learn from feedback loops or whatever? Um, I don't know. I don't have a really crisp story there, but I would find it strange just to be very calm about we're creating these perhaps agentic, in some sense, super intelligent systems, creates this very opaque stochastic process. And we're allowing them to maybe over the long run pursue long run goals in the world and giving them important responsibilities. And it's hard for us to kind of understand why they're doing what they're doing. And that's just fine. And nothing could go wrong there. Uh, that seems probably too confident. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess that also just like, you know, to, to close the loop or something, um, to back to the beginning of when we started this conversation, must leave you in like a bit of a weird epistemic position as well to be in where you're like, you know, very skeptical of these arguments, but still like, much less skeptical than like most of, uh, you know, society or like the rest of like the fielders where you're like, oh, this thing is like, you know, potentially like really dangerous and like really worrying, um, but also like aware of like a lot of the limitations at the same time. Yeah, I, it, it definitely is a little bit of a strange position. I do also think as well, there's like, a, I think just a lot strange about, um, about how um, maybe the brother world or people in the ML space think about these kinds of risks where, um, you know, if you survey researchers, it just you know, kind of random machine learning researchers, and you ask them, what's the chance that stuff is going to be really horrible? Mm. Um, I think if it's like five to 15%, something like that, you know, there've been, you know, different surveys. And that's kind of interesting that people don't seem that responsive in their behavior to the thing you're doing. As in, like, it's, it's weird to, you know, think that the thing yeah. that you're working on has a 5 to 15% chance yeah, exactly. of like Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The field that you're pushing forward. Yeah. 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 Um, so that AI impact survey was like roughly half, like 48% of people who responded thought at least 10% chance. Of yeah. Quote unquote, extremely bad. Uh, yeah. We also have some numbers on this from, I think, unpublished survey. I'm not sure what they, what they are, but it's, um, I wish I, yeah, but it's definitely, it's, let's say, non negligible. Um, and then those numbers are not, um, 
I, it's a bit hard to say. I mean, so like what exactly the brisk scenario people are focused on is, but I do think um I do think there's lots of people where if you actually were to really force them to put a probability on what's the chance that we in some sense lose control over these things, and that's just quite bad in, in a way that causes lasting harm. Um I don't know that I'm actually that much um my number is actually that much higher than lots of people who don't really focus that much on this. I don't really know exactly what's going on there. Um, I do think just for lots of people, um, there's things that just, um, I don't know, they, in some sense, they're explicitly reported beliefs, but they don't seem to filter into people's behavior that much. And it's not clear how much of this is um, people kind of say they believe them, but not really. Um, yeah. Like if they actually were yeah. forced to reflect on it, they would they would have a different view or um, what's going on. I remember um, a public opinion survey of, um, I think it was US citizens that um, um, we did a few years ago. I think I think there's an issue, if I remember correctly, with maybe the way that human level AI was defined that was a, a bit too inclusive. But I think it was something like the average member of the US public has like 10 year timelines. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, and that's one of those things where it's not really clear uh, yeah, my my prior there is something going wrong with how people are understanding what human level AI is, but um, I, I do think there's lots of people who um, at least will report beliefs which are not that different than mine, and then just focus yeah. less on the issue. I guess often it's actually kind of hard to tell what the difference is between actually believing something yeah. is a big deal, but failing to act on that somehow, and like claiming that you believe something but not actually believing it in some sense. Like I don't know, maybe they're just kind of roughly the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit tricky. I do think you see this with other issues as well. Like I think um, my memory is that if you ask people like, what's the chance climate change will cause human extinction? Right. It's like unusually, it's kind of high. Um, and then people's behavior. People think bees. Yeah. Are a huge deal, right? Right. Like some UK <laughs> yeah. 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 And then. Just people, that, yeah, and it's not really clear if it's just one of those things where it's like you pick up, you know, someone's asking you, surveying you, and you have stuff to do in your life. Right. And it's like, and they're like, what's the chance bees kills everybody? Yeah. And then you're like, I don't know, 10%, whatever. <laughs> Is that fine? Are you happy? <laughs> right. Not really clear. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that like strikes you as like somewhat suspicious about a lot of these estimates being like in let's say the five to twenty percent range? So like one story I could imagine is if I'm like thinking about what's the most important you know yeah. thing to work on. If I say that something has like a ninety nine percent chance of like ending humanity, yeah, then it's like almost like futile to like work on it because yeah. it's like overdetermined. And if it's like you know one percent, then it's like too small for me to like yeah. you know care or like I can just dismiss it. But anything in that range seems like the sweet spot for like tractability stuff. I don't, yeah, so I don't really know. I think, um, I mean, one thing to say is there absolutely are people who are closer to 99% than they are to 20%. Like there's, there certainly are people who, um, who have that viewpoint. Um, I guess, I guess famously, you know, Elias Rutkowski is, is notable person who's certainly closer to 99% than 20%. Um, um, and so I don't know maybe the people who are, who are really doomy, um, can avoid the, that form of suspicion. Yeah. <laughs> so they're they're in the clear. That's yeah. not what's going on with them. Um, I don't know. I I don't. I think if you look at the distribution, the probability distribution on a plot, I don't know that there's actually some suspicious cross right. drain around five to twenty percent. Um, I, I remember there's a survey. There've been a number of surveys, but I, I my memory is it looks a little bit like a um, almost like a log normal distribution or something like that. Um, it's not um that's like kind of smoothly spread out across orders of magnitude, which is weird in its own right. 
Like yeah. something's kind of wrong there. Um, but I don't remember there being any any impression of the suspicious clustering around the, the 5 to 20% range. Yeah, interesting. So then maybe moving on to thinking about you know what people can do. I think you know to be clear, it's maybe also useful to like maybe draw a distinction between these like more abstract, you know, what is AGI risk? Like, what numbers should we put on these things versus yeah. like day to day? Like, what can we do? Uh, can you maybe begin by just talking about like what does like actual AI governance work? You know, for example, at GovAI uh, look like? Like, what kind of questions are people working on? Yeah. So at, at a high level, um, the way I I think about the field of AI governance. Um, is basically the the idea here is there may be some level of contingency in terms of the harms or benefits that AI brings. Um, these contingencies will probably mostly depend on decisions made by a relatively small number of of government and private institutions, different parts of, especially, let's say U.S., U.K., China, a few other countries probably matter quite a bit, and there's relevant institutions that probably matter quite a bit, and then uh, perhaps private actors matter quite a bit, and perhaps a number of other institutions can have influence. And then the way I think about the field of AI governance is the goal is to try and um, help those institutions make better decisions um, about AI issues, essentially. And um, yeah, and so I think the um, and I think there's a number of different pathways for that. So one pathway is uh, trying to directly inform decisions which are happening at any given moment. Mm -hmm. um, so policy questions uh, at the you know, national or lab level. Um, another thing the field can do is try and increase capacity for those institutions to make better decisions. And there's a lot of different things you could do to further that goal. Um, and that includes trying to make sure that there are uh, good, competent, knowledgeable, you know, scope sensitive, socially competent, all the other traits that are helpful <laughs> for, for having a positive impact with institutions, people that yeah. can be hired by those institutions. Um, and that includes, you know, um, yeah. Uh, building up, you know, forms of expertise and and helping screen people and things like that. Uh, there's building up very similarly, you know, network of experts who can help advise these institutions and have forms of expertise that are actually relevant and that can leverage and have good connections. Um, then there's different things at the level of, um, yeah, trying to um, help uh, build connections between people at different institutions so that they can actually share information and converge on sensible ideas and and whatnot. Um, and there's other things beyond that as well of um, trying to um, help, you know, create a supply of basically, uh, let's say, intellectual resources, which people at these these institutions can pull on that might be useful for making decisions. So reports and and proposals and things like that. Uh, there's also things you can do at the level of trying to um, push memes, which are are useful, for example, normalizing or um, creating support for certain decisions these institutions might want to make. Mm. Uh, so, for example. If you're a lab that wants to not open source your models because you think that that's something that's responsible, it's beneficial for that to be an idea that exists in the yeah. ecosystem, that that's a responsible action uh, that's built up over time through lots of conversations and op-ed pieces and, and, and whatnot. Uh, so basically, two bits. There's trying to directly answer questions which matter for institutions right now. Mm. And then there's this really broad range of forms of capacity building which are meant to help institutions in the future be more set up to make positive decisions. Mm. Um, and so that, that's just a basic framing thing. And I think a lot of the, um, historically, I think a lot of the purpose of the field of AI governance has been these kinds of capacity building as opposed to, to um, uh, let's really directly answer a question that an institution faces right now. Um, with, I guess, with that foundation in place or with that being said, 
Um, I think that there's a number of uh, different categories of decisions that important institutions are starting to have to make, especially yeah. um, over the course of the past couple of years. Um, so maybe let's give a range. Uh, there's decisions that labs need to make, for instance, at the moment about uh, publication and release of models, uh, things ranging from like when it's responsible to release a model to whether they should open source or not open source, to what sorts of processes they should have internally to decide what to release and when, mm. and make sure it's safe. Uh, there's decisions that, uh, for example, a number of governments, most notably the US government, are making at the moment about export controls and sharing of technology globally and, and supply chains that probably have significant impacts. Yeah. Uh, there's decisions which are being made about the regulation of AI. So in the EU, there's work on the EU AI Act, which is a number of other associated acts which have um, less catchy names, um, which um, you know, are, are, may have some impact on, on basically uh, in the future. Um, what um yeah what companies are forced to do to 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 be responsible in developing or releasing AI systems, um and there's also you know, regulatory interest in the U.S. and U.K. and standard setting work which will feed into those regulatory efforts. Uh, so basically, there's a number of different areas of activity at the moment, and then um, in terms of trying to inform these institutions, then there's a, a flurry of work being done to try and figure out what would it actually be good for these institutions to do within the political constraints that they face and what yeah. might the relationship be between actions that they're taking and, and risks that could emerge in the long run. Among the different kinds of capacity building you mentioned, uh, one of them was something like, you know, cultivating expertise, yeah. finding potential experts and skilling them up, um, uh, presumably with a view to those people giving useful advice to people like lawmakers and yeah. other big institutions. And I'm curious, like if I'm a lawmaker, and I've started thinking about what I uh, might want to do about um, advanced AI, the kind that doesn't exist yet, but might exist. Yeah. And so I'm looking for people to give me advice who've like spent, let's say, at least a couple years thinking full time yeah. about, uh, specifically about advanced AI. Like how many people are there in the world? Like how crowded is this space, you know? Yeah. So that's a good question. I mean, so that's maybe one way to frame it is you're looking, you've become concerned about, you know, things that might be called AGI. Sure. Um, and you're worried that there'll be yeah, really, really general or advanced systems in the future that can cause global catastrophes. And you're trying to think, how might this, what sort of legislation, you know, even if it's yeah, not possible sure. to pass it now, might be useful in, let's say, the US to, um, to help with those risks. Uh, so I'd say the staff people who know stuff at a practical level about how regulation in the US works and you know um, how legislation is drafted and things like that. Um, and also have thought very substantially about risks from AGI systems and you know theories of impact between different things. Like those two buckets together, um, that's surely less than, I feel pretty confident it's less than 10 people. Um, I, cool. I'm not confident it is 10 people. Here's like maybe one silly question of like how normal is that compared to like other bits of like legislation? So for example, well, like one story I could just imagine is that a lot of like actual, you know, writing the text of like legislation is always like incredibly niche. Yeah. What about like self-driving cars, right? Like how many people can I speak to if I want to draft some bill? Yeah, maybe to give like more of a sense of like I don't actually don't know. This, this is this is part of my yeah, this is probably my own ignorance. I don't really know yeah. um how many I don't know how many people would be in that category. I assume yeah. more. Mm -hmm. Um I think a lot of this stuff is also at the state level as well. Yeah, um, yeah, but right. yeah. Yeah. So then when you're thinking about like, you know, again, in the spirit of capacity building or, or filling some of these like talent gaps, how much of it is just this like know-how combination versus having like particular 
you know, skill sets that are like maybe more more tacit or something? Um, I think it's it's but yeah, it's a bit tricky. I think it's definitely both things going on. So do you think a, a category like a type of a, a, like a basket of skill sets? I think is is really a basket of skills. I think is really important. Is um um one um actually knowing stuff about how things work in the real world knowing how various institutions actually function and what's actually politically feasible and and whatnot two having a sense of like what future risks might actually look like in some sense or having a level of concern and awareness of the discourse around things like risks from much more advanced safety risks from much more advanced ai systems mm. and then three is yeah, like this, um, this ability to sort of connect those two things and think in all things considered sense, uh, what might the different downstream effects of different decisions made today be? Or how do you either, how do you either back chain from the risk that you want to avoid to um, what can actually happen today? Um, or forward chain from the different decisions that are happening today to like what the, um, the implication is for risk? I think all of those together are quite important and there's sort of accelerating returns in them. I think they have different aspects. So the first bit, a lot of it is actual just expertise of actually just knowing things that if you'd worked in various places for a while, you just probably would by default know certain yeah, things yeah. or if you read lots of stuff. Uh, there's also some aspect of just kind of some sort of common sense street smarty thing that I think yeah. people sometimes raise as important above and beyond the other bits. In terms of having a kind of clear picture of and concern with risks from more advanced AI systems, I think a lot of that is a kind of expertise thing where it maybe calls it, it's funny to call it expertise because everything is so speculative and, and disorganized. But um, I think a lot of it's just if you read a lot of stuff and talk to a lot of people and you're in the right circles, you know, you'll have a picture of that. Mm. And then this last bit of actually doing that for that forward or backward chaining, um, that's, I think, more of a skill set thing um, that is also, I think, in its own right, uh, really non-trivial. And I mean, to give an example of this is, um, let's say you were thinking about a question like, would it be positive or negative um, for it to become hard for um, in the future for uh, large AI companies to acquire smaller AGI-focused companies mm. in the US? There's a really, that's a really hard question. And let's say you're just focused specifically on um, you know, the likelihood of some sort of AI safety catastrophe. It becomes way harder if you're training off different things you might worry about, but just like focus on that even as a simplifying assumption. And that's the only thing that you care about. Uh, that's a really actually very difficult question that involves lots of weighing of different considerations. So you might say, okay, first of all, what's the impact of this on AI progress, the, you know, the pace of AI progress. Mm -hmm. And then there's a question of, is it better or worse for progress in the U S to, to be faster or slower? Um, you might say, okay, probably slower, but that's not completely obvious because you, you can also tell these other narratives of like, oh, it's good for there to be a significant U.S. lead over other countries because if you have a leadership position, then this gives you breathing room to to pause in the future when you have advanced AI systems and not worry about other people kind of catching up to you and do responsible regulation when the risks are large. And so even that's not completely clear. There's there's stories you can tell about why it might be good to move faster. Mm -hmm. um, but then, okay, so let's say you look at speed and then there's that question there of, okay, well, what would the impact of this be on the pace of AI progress? And then you might say, okay, well, it consolidates resources into single actors, and so maybe you get larger training runs more quickly, 
but then maybe some counter story you can tell of like diversity of approaches, perhaps playing a role in accelerating things or large companies being more yeah. worried about the small companies catching up to them. And so then maybe it's actually, you know, can go in either direction. There's a bunch of factors that feed into that. And then you might say, okay, well, maybe speed isn't the only thing that matters here. You know, maybe it's a case that there's other flow through effects, like for example, the total number of actors um, might have an impact in terms of how much, you know, like, uh, you know, a unilateral curse thing, or just if there's safety trade-offs, some of them will have lower assignments to risk than others, or some of them yeah. will be more reckless than others. And so increasing total number of actors increases the chance someone takes a reckless action or someone screws up or is bad on safety. Um, then you might say, okay, what's the influence on regulation? Like what's the likelihood <laughs> of like aggressive regulation of these companies, like things that require like licenses in the future for large training runs. Yeah. And you might say, okay, maybe a, I'll, yeah, I, I, I can see where this is. <laughs> yeah. So I guess like one, you know, upshot question yeah. to ask maybe, you know, on behalf of like listeners who are thinking about like yeah. getting into this field is like, you know, how important is it maybe a, you know, to have a good fit on here? Yeah. Like how important, you know, is it? Is it to like be really good at this work as opposed to just being able to like throw, you know, more like total brain power at this and like anything like helps? And then I guess like be like, how would you distinguish between what kind of backgrounds and skills or like tests like could there be to, for somebody to find out whether like AI governance is a good fit for them? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, it obviously depends on what someone's outside options are to a significant degree where, you know, if you have the a chance of being the single most influential, you know, biosecurity policy expert in the yeah. US or the option of being um, uh, you can kind of barely get, you know, like barely get hired by any place like yeah. a governance researcher who contributes a bit. Um, probably should do the biosecurity one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, it's so tricky. It really depends on people's, um, you know, outside options. Um, I. Yeah, I, I think that is that is a tricky thing. I think will really be personal at the level of of like how else you can have an impact in the world or how much you value you know impact versus your life being nice and things like that. Yeah, something I think is a bit unfortunate here is I think people um, develop skills at a different pace or sort of reveal themselves as people who can do pretty valuable work at different paces. I do think sometimes for some people there is actually a real dynamic of. Um, you can learn pretty quickly or get positive feedback pretty quickly uh, that you're doing valuable stuff. Um, like I think that some people, um, I can think of kind of concrete cases of this, like within a year of getting interested in AI governance after having done something else, um, they've actually built, they actually have become someone that other people are actively seeking advice or viewpoints from and um, not just like getting good feedback, but there's that credible demand signal. Of right. They have stuff to say on a topic that people are interested in. Um, or when they look at someone else's piece, they can have thoughts on that. They share with the person and the person's like, oh, I hadn't thought of that before. That was that was clarifying. Um, I think I've definitely also seen people though who, um, um, for instance, uh, let's say did years ago a GovAI you know, fellowship or internship and maybe didn't get that much done in the context of it or didn't yeah. get that much positive feedback and then they're out in the world and then years later, it's like, oh wow, that person's actually, um, doing work I consider pretty valuable and yeah. it seems quite sharp on, on that issue. Uh, so that's one high level thing that I think is a bit tricky where um, I do think it's sometimes possible to get positive feedback quite quickly for work, but then sometimes there are people who it's a bit of a slower learning curve or in some sense it's a bit of a sleeper thing. Mm. Um, I think a, a pretty basic thing that um, I think it's possible for people to do um, um, that 
can be a way of getting a positive signal is uh, read closely some piece of work that someone else has put out. Mm. Um, that's a significant piece of work. And then reflect on it and then see if you have something at the level of useful reviewer comments on it. So imagine mm. you're like a peer reviewer for the piece um, and you're noticing issues with it or you're noticing ex possible extensions of it that could be valuable. Um, and then writing that up. And then ideally, if you can share it with the author and they actually can take a time to look at it, um, yeah. uh, that's a way that sometimes people can get a positive signal. It's just, can you actually take a piece of existing work by someone that's a little bit at the frontier? And then if you spend enough time on it, say something additionally, which is clarifying. Mm. Um, and, and that's something that people can do for at least public work. Um, that can be a way to get signal without even that much of a mentorship relationship. Um, I do think if you can do a program, like something like uh, GovAI has these summer and winter fellowships, we bring people over for a few months and do a supervised research project. That's obviously another way that you can get that signal is um, with mm. supervision and someone guiding you um, and feedback. Can you in that time produce something that other people find valuable or interesting? Um, I think failing to do that isn't necessarily a decisive negative signal and empirically yeah. isn't, um, but you, that's the way to get the positive signals if you have an opportunity to do um, something like an internship. Um, I would say overall, though, um, most people are not going to be in the fortunate position of really having an opportunity to have a close mentorship relationship after yeah. um, um, getting first interested in the area. And then a lot of the task there is, can you use publicly available writing to write something yourself that other people in some way find useful? And I think a review of someone else's piece is one of the simplest ways to do that. Um, but you can also imagine something like write up a short policy memo of something like figure out an actual proposal for what's an action some institution, you know, could take at a high level and then yeah. have a three pager you can send to people. And if people find that they learn something from it, then that's another thing you can do. And one maybe like motivating thing here to, uh, perhaps emphasize is to say, it's like often very surprising how quickly you can actually find the frontier of research yeah. of like, as you said before, you know, often it's like yeah. less than 10 people who have thought about anything. Often it's yeah. like less than one person or at least one full-time person yeah. who has thought about anything that at least the barrier going in to like thinking that you can like make yeah. useful criticisms or extensions, as you say, can yeah. often be much lower and much less intimidating. Yeah. I would say, I think a really key thing that a lot of people under appreciate is the frontier is really not far from whatever, I don't know what the, analogous thing at the starting point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the frontier has not moved very far forward on most things. Um, very little work has been done on most questions that seem like they're incredibly important. Um, I, a common dynamic I'll encounter, um, this is actually very common, yeah. is someone will want to work on some issue. And it's like a broad, it's a really broad issue. Like how should we, how could we create a regulatory regime in the future for large training runs? Um, or, you know, questions around, um, you know, recent U.S. export controls, like positive, you know, or negative from like yeah. a certain perspective. Mm. Um, or even I've just heard like compute governance as like a broad area. Um, and then someone will say like, oh, I, I probably shouldn't work on that because it, it seems like it's already covered. Yeah. And it'll be like three people. Right. Sometimes it's one person. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there'll be a sense of, oh, okay, there's, you know, and nothing is covered. There's no, there's basically no topic area in this space that, that I would describe as covered. Like, oh, it can't absorb additional people. Mm. You know, the guy on it is so good that just, <laughs> it, it's fine. Um, and a lot of areas, it's, it's really like the past year that anyone has done, that there's been one FTE, yeah. like a person who it's, this is their thing, they're the this thing person. Um, so broadly speaking, very little work has been done 
uneven questions that seem like a lot of work should have been done on them. Um, there's almost no topic of importance that has a huge number of people actually working on it, although a number of topics have a lot of people who say stuff about it, mm. which is, I think, a difference from someone who actually, in a focused way, is trying to yeah. build up expertise on a topic over the course of a year or more. Yeah. You said the frontier hasn't moved very far. Yeah. I'm curious, since when? Uh, 20, let's say, let's say the fields of AI governance focused on risks from advanced systems. Let's say it started in 2016. Uh -huh. Okay. How do you think about what the main reason is? Is it just a small number of FTEs to yeah. move very far at all? Or is it people have been maybe going down rabbit holes which didn't pan out? Yeah. What's going on? Uh, so I think it's a few issues together. Um, one is very few people. I think that is actually a really blunt thing is yeah. just actually very few people. Um, another thing is this dynamic I alluded to before um, of there being this really large gap between what was actually happening yeah. in the world. And um, if you wanted to focus on risks from advanced AI systems, like right. what the, the considerations there were. So I think you had a mixture of people doing work, which um, was on present day things, but didn't really transfer um, or, um, or things work, which was just very abstract about risks from AI that um, just falls into the, the trap that a lot of abstract research does, if it just doesn't connect to actual decisions. I think it's also a general thing of, um, yeah, I think there's just also dynamics as well of um, a lot of work for you know, various reasons being relatively academic and just academic work being being often like less targeted or less sure. useful, um, um, less sort of pressure in, in, in various ways as well. Mm. Awesome. Can you maybe give a couple of examples then um, either of you know, concrete research questions that fill that you know sweet spot of yeah. being... Uh, Related to advanced AI, yeah. but you know, practical enough yeah. to like bear today. And there are yeah. people working on you would love to see. Um, yeah, maybe as like an entryway for people to uh, begin exploring this field, uh, or just in general because this feels like a really valuable thing uh, to be doing. Yeah. So I'll give one concrete example, and this is one that I should say one person is currently working on it that I I, I know of, but that should not be taken as a reason <laughs> not to work on it. Um, so I, I currently am supervising a project by um, a GovAI venture fellow, uh, Connor, and the focus of the project is, suppose it were the case at some point in the future that some part of the US government were to prevent a company from doing a certain large training run because they were worried about the safety implications of that training run. Does any exi mm. existing regulatory, is there any existing regulatory authority that would be invoked by some part of the US government to do that? Um, or would it actually require um, new legislation? Mm. There's not, that's not a thing that there, there's not like some existing white paper on that yeah. that I can point people to. Um, um, I've talked to lots of people um, about this question. This is a pretty frequent one that I've, I've asked different people with some knowledge of, you know, the US government regulatory landscape. And it often gets a bit of a like, a little bit of a blank look. Um, and that's just, yeah, that's kind of mad to me that that, um, yeah, still, there's not something yet written on that. And so there's now one person who's at GovAI for a few months, um, mm. who's who I think is now at the frontier on this question after uh -huh. two months of having worked on it, who doesn't have a law background. Um, their background is philosophy. Yeah. Um, I think they're just actually now at the frontier on that question. I think they actually have a better understanding of that question than anyone else in the world. Wow. Okay. Good yeah. luck, Connor. There is a lot of writing on this. <laughs> uh, yeah. Can you talk a bit more generally about, yeah. uh, you know, what 
GovAI, you know, has to offer maybe to people who are like interested uh, in like pursuing a career here. And so in terms of mentorship, yeah. you've mentioned the Winter Fellowship here. Uh, yeah. Like what kind of resources are there? Yeah. So um, we see a lot of our mission as an organization as basically supporting the AI governance talent pipeline, um, either in, in institutions that matter or into um, building up experts who can advise institutions that, that matter. Um, and we have a, a few programs which are specifically targeted at this. So we have our summer and winter fellowship program, which runs uh, twice a year. Um, and we have cohorts of about 13 people. And basically the way this works is um, everyone gets a primary and secondary uh, supervisor. So they, they come in and then uh, they work on a topic of their choosing. Although we also have a long list of questions that we think it might be useful for someone to work on that we've often sourced from, from various outside institutions. Hmm. Uh, they have a primary supervisor relationship where they meet with their supervisor once an hour, who's an established person in the AI governance space. Um, also a secondary supervisor who complements the primary supervisor's expertise, often at one of these relevant institutions. Um, and then we have our research manager, Emma, also provide guidance to people um, in terms of general sort of research goal advice and tracking where you're on your project and if you're getting stuck and things like that. And then also um, bring in outside speakers for Q&As about different career pathways. We do that like twice a week during the fellowship people who work in different places or pursue different paths, um, advice about how they got to where they're, they're going and what they think is important in the space, things like that. Um, and so basically put a lot of effort into um, trying to set people up to pursue a career in the space and, and get various viable things. Uh, we also have a, uh, a research scholar program, which is, is, let's say, less structured or set up at this point than the Summer Winter Fellowship, in part because it's newer. Mm. Uh, these are one-year visiting um, positions. And there's two flavors. Uh, one is what we call drone track research scholar position. And the idea is basically you come over for a year um, and you're based in our office in Oxford, and then you have a supervisor and you basically have a lot of freedom and flexibility to, to use the opportunity to work on whatever is most useful from the perspective of, of building up a career in the space. And that can include doing work with outside institutions or exploring different topics of interest or, or whatever, basically. Um, actually pretty, you know, based on the idea of, of, uh, FHI's research scholar program, which um, of course you've you've both done, and uh, yeah. we've kind of stolen the idea and the name. <laughs> um, and we also have a policy track version of it, where it's um, less of a focus on freedom and exploration, um, but the idea is uh, you're meant to work on joint or group projects with our policy team, and mm. sort of learn through that. And it's it's like remote friendly, and it sort of trades off the the freedom with the um, more of a focus on doing applied work within the context of a team. Mm. Um, and so. Yeah, those are both roles we've launched recently, and they're a bit experimental. We actually have um, currently a sort of mini round open at the moment to um, hire for um, something like two to three slots at, at the moment. Mm -hmm. This may be completed by the time the episode is out, but uh -huh. if you're listening to this at some point in the future, maybe it, it exists or maybe it's closed. You had it here um, first. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we'll also be doing this again later in the year as hiring for more slots. So those yeah. are two things. We're also, um, as well, experimenting with a, a policy program, which is basically um, a, a uh, sort of lighter touch remote fellowship where we give people a reading list of things you should know about mm -hmm. AI. If yes. you want to go into AI policy and have Q&A sessions and it's remote and meant to be compatible with people working full-time jobs wherever. Uh, yes. This is a, a thing that we're currently exploring and might launch in the future. So that's a long list of things. Cool. And we'll post links if slash when they're relevant. Can you recommend on the order of three bits of reading for people to find out more about what we've been talking about, especially kind of things which 
seem unlikely that they've been mentioned in previous episodes. Yeah, um, let me think. Uh, so I don't know if I can do this. Is maybe outside the bounds of what of what you want, but um, <laughs> try us. Yeah. <laughs> so the um, uh, there's this AI governance uh, syllabus or curriculum uh -huh. associated with the AGI Safety Fundamentals course. Uh, that's a really good reading list of of readings which are um, relevant if you want to sort of learn quickly about the AI governance space, and it covers yeah. a pretty broad range of areas. That's very like my first wish is to have a hundred wishes. But yeah, fine, we'll exactly. <laughs> you can just look at it, and then you know the things are pretty good on it, and just read the ones that you want to yeah. read. <laughs> uh, so that's that's one. So that's my first hundred wishes. Uh -huh. um, the other is all of the readings for a master's program on machine learning. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, that's a good question. There's, I, I don't think that, I don't think the space really has these very canonical, mm. like, oh, if this is the one thing you read on this, this is what I would have you read mm. kinds of pieces. Um, if you want to understand or think about AI risk arguments, uh, Joe Carl Smith has, um, a really good long report with open philanthropy, um, on the case for AI risk that I think is the best thing written on the topic. Which I think he's recently written a new summary for. As well, I, I think I missed that, but you should maybe mm. read the summary. Has, yeah, <laughs> yeah um, you should maybe do that. I think that's the single best piece of writing on AI risk, essentially. Um, and that's quite quite long. Um, let me and think. Do you also have yeah. a review of it? I do also have a review of it. That's true. Um, I also have a, a thirty page uh, reviewer comments document yeah. on mm. it. That's also can be found online. Uh, yeah, so I guess that adds up to three things. That's, <laughs> that's, yeah, either three or 103. Or it's a, yeah, right. So it's a syllabus, this one specific report by Joe, and then my reviewer commentary <laughs> and that report by Joe. Perfect. Yeah. Um, great. And then I guess like last question to close things off is where can people find you and GovAI online? Yeah, so uh, you can find us at www.governance.ai. Nice. Um, and then we have a website, and that's what you'll be brought to if you type those into your browser and you press enter. Is AI like .ai a country or? Um, so I think it's Anguilla, oh. I think. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We actually like looked into whether we could get um, gov.ai as a secondary um, um, URL. Yeah. Yeah. And it turns out that's just the, the website for the, the government. I think I remember trying to visit that. Anguilla. And we figured that probably that would be Probably they deserve it more. <laughs> <laughs> Seems right. Okay. Um, and anywhere people can find you online? Um, yeah. So I, I have a very bare bones personal website. I think you just go to benmgarfinkel.com. I think that's me. And then it will just be two paragraphs of information about me <laughs> <laughs> and a photo. Um, but that might be a nice compliment to, um, to, to what you've what you've learned about me from from this this interview. Nice. Hey, awesome. Ben Garfinkel, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. That was Ben Garfinkel on AI governance. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Garfinkel. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. If you enjoyed this podcast and find it valuable, then one of the best ways to help us out is to write a review on whatever platform you're listening to. You can also give us a shout out on Twitter, we're at Hear This Idea. We also have a short feedback survey in the episode description, which should only take you somewhere between five to 10 minutes to fill out. And you'll get a free book from us as a thank you. And lastly, if you wanna support and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, then you can also leave us a tip by following the link in the description. A big thanks as always to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes. And thanks very much to you for listening.